Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 54. The Knapsack, the Hat and the Horn. There were once three brothers who had fallen deeper and deeper into poverty, and at last their need was so great that they had to endure hunger and had nothing to eat or drink. Then they said, We cannot go on this way. We had better go into the world and seek our fortune. They therefore set out and had already walked over many a long road and many a blade of grass, but had not yet met with good luck. One day they arrived in a great forest. In the middle of it was a hill, and when they came nearer they saw that the hill was all silver. Then spoke the eldest, Now I have found the good luck I wished for, and I desire nothing more. He took as much of the silver as he could possibly carry, and then turned back and went home again. But the two others said, We want something more from good luck than mere silver, and did not touch it, but went onwards. After they had walked for two days longer without stopping, they came to a hill which was all gold. The second brother stopped and thought to himself and was undecided. What shall I do, said he? Shall I take for myself so much of this gold that I have plenty for all the rest of my life? Or shall I go farther? At length he made a decision and putting as much into his pockets as would go in, said farewell to his brother, and went home. But the third said, Silver and gold do not move me. I will not give up my chance of fortune. Perhaps something even better will be given me. He journeyed onwards, and when he had walked for three days, he got into a forest which was still larger than the one before and never would come to an end. And as he found nothing to eat or to drink, he was exhausted. Then he climbed up a high tree to find out if up there he could see the end of the forest. But so far as his eye could see, he saw nothing but the tops of trees. Then he began to descend the tree again, but hunger tormented him, and he thought to himself, If I could but eat my fill once more. When he got down, he saw with astonishment a table beneath the tree, richly spread with food, the steam of which rose up to meet him. This time, said he, my wish has been fulfilled at the right moment. And without inquiring who had brought the food or who had cooked it, he approached the table and ate with enjoyment until he had appeased his hunger. When he was done, he thought, it would after all be a pity if the pretty little tablecloth were to be spoiled in the forest here, and folded it up tidily and put it in his pocket. Then he went onwards, and in the evening, when hunger arose again, he wanted to try out his little cloth, and spread it out, and said, I wish you to be covered with good cheer again, 
and scarcely had the wish crossed his lips than as many dishes with the most exquisite food on them stood on the table as there was room for. Now I perceive, said he, in what kitchen my cooking is done. You shall be dearer to me than the mountains of silver and gold, for he saw plainly that it was a wishing cloth. The cloth, however, was still not enough to enable him to return and sit quietly at home. He preferred to wander about the world and pursue his fortune father. One night he met in a lonely wood a dusty black charcoal burner, who was burning charcoal there and had some potatoes by the fire that he was going to make into a meal. Good evening, Blackbird, said the youth. How do you get on in your solitude? One day is like another, replied the charcoal burner, and every night potatoes. Have you a mind to have some, and will you be my guest? Many thanks, replied the traveller. I won't rob you of your supper. You did not reckon on a visitor, but if you will put up with what I have, you shall have an invitation. Who is to prepare it for you? said the charcoal burner. I see that you have nothing with you, and there is no one within a two hours walk who could give you anything. And yet there shall be a meal, answered the youth, and better than any you have ever tasted. Thereupon he brought his cloth out of his knapsack, spread it on the ground, and said, Little cloth, cover yourself, and instantly Boiled meat and baked meat stood there, and as hot as if it had just come out of the kitchen. The charcoal burner stared, but did not require much pressing. He fell to and thrust larger and larger mouthfuls into his black mouth. When they had eaten everything, the charcoal burner smiled contentedly and said, your tablecloth has my approval. It would be a fine thing for me in this forest where no one ever cooks me anything good. I will propose an exchange to you. There in the corner hangs a soldier's knapsack, which is certainly old and shabby, but in it wonderful powers lie concealed. But as I no longer use it, I will give it to you for the tablecloth. I must first know what these wonderful powers are, answered the youth. That I will tell you, replied the charcoal burner. Every time you tap it with your hand, a corporal comes with six men armed from head to foot, and they do whatever you command them. So far as I am concerned, said the youth, if nothing else can be done, we will exchange. And he gave the charcoal burner the cloth, took the knapsack from the hook, put it on, and bade farewell. When he had walked a while, he wished to make a trial of the magical powers of his knapsack, and tapped it. Immediately, the seven warriors stepped up to him, and the corporal said, What does my lord and ruler wish for? March with all speed to the charcoal burner and demand my wishing cloth back. They faced to the left 
and it was not long before they brought what he required and had taken it from the charcoal burner without asking many questions. The young man bade them retire, went onwards, and hoped fortune would shine yet more brightly on him. By sunset, he came to another charcoal burner, who was making his supper ready by the fire. If you will eat some potatoes with salt, but with no dripping, come and sit down with me, said the sooty fellow. No, he replied, this time you shall be my guest. And he spread out his cloth, which was instantly covered with the most beautiful dishes. They ate and drank together, and enjoyed themselves heartily. After the meal was over, the charcoal burner said, Up there on that shelf lies a little old worn-out hat, which has strange properties. When anyone puts it on, and turns it round on his head, the cannons go off, as if twelve were fired all together, and they shoot down everything, so that no one can withstand them. The hat is of no use to me, and I will willingly give it for your tablecloth. That suits me very well, he answered, took the hat, put it on, and left his tablecloth behind. Hardly, however, had he walked away, than he tapped on his knapsack, and his soldiers had to fetch the cloth back again. One thing comes on the top of another, thought he, and I feel as if my luck had not yet come to an end. Nor had his thoughts deceived him. After he had walked on for the whole of one day, he came to a third charcoal burner who, like the previous ones, invited him to potatoes without dripping. But he let him too dine with him from his wishing cloth, and the charcoal burner liked it so well that at last he offered him a horn for it, which had very different properties from those of the hat. When any one blew it, all the walls and fortifications fell down, and all towns and villages became ruins. He certainly gave the charcoal burner the cloth for it, but he afterwards sent his soldiers to demand it back again, so that at length he had the knapsack, hat and horn, all free. Now, said he, I am a made man, and it is time for me to go home and see how my brothers are getting on. When he reached home, his brothers had built themselves a handsome house with their silver and gold and were living in prosperity. He went to see them, but as he came in a ragged coat with his shabby hat on his head and his old knapsack on his back, they would not acknowledge him as their brother. They mocked and said, You claim that you are our brother who despised silver and gold and craved for something still better for himself. He will come in his carriage in full splendour like a mighty king, not like a beggar, and they drove him out of doors. Then he fell into a rage and tapped his knapsack until a hundred and fifty men stood before him armed from head to foot. He commanded them to surround his brother's house, and two of them were to take hazel rods with them and beat the two insolent men until they knew who he was. 
a violent disturbance arose. People ran together and wanted to lend the two some help in their need, but against the soldiers they could do nothing. News of this at length came to the king, who was very angry and ordered a captain to march out with his troop and drive this disturber of the peace out of the town. But the man with the knapsack soon got a greater body of men together who repulsed the captain and his men so that they were forced to retire with bloody noses. The king said, This vagabond is not brought to order yet and next day sent a still larger troop against him, but they could do even less. The youth set still more men against them, and in order to be done even sooner he turned his hat twice round on his head, and heavy guns began to play, and the king's men were beaten and put to flight. And now, said he, I will not make peace until the king gives me his daughter for my wife, and I govern the whole kingdom in his name. He caused this to be announced to the king, and the latter said to his daughter, Necessity is a hard nut to crack. What remains for me but to do what he desires? If I want peace and to keep the crown on my head, I must give you away. So the wedding was celebrated, but the king's daughter was vexed that her husband should be a common man who wore a shabby hat and put on an old knapsack. She wished much to get rid of him, and night and day studied how she could accomplish this. Then she thought to herself, Is it possible that his wonderful powers lie in the knapsack? And she dissembled and caressed him. And when his heart was softened, she said, If you would but lay aside that ugly knapsack, it disfigures you so, that I can't help being ashamed of you. Dear child, said he, this knapsack is my greatest treasure. As long as I have it, there is no power on earth that I am afraid of. And he revealed to her the wonderful virtue with which it was endowed. Then she threw herself in his arms as if she were going to kiss him, but dexterously took the knapsack off his shoulders and ran away with it. As soon as she was alone, she tapped it and commanded the warriors to seize their former master and take him out of the royal palace. They obeyed, and the false wife sent still more men after him, who were to drive him quite out of the country. Then he would have been ruined if he had not had the little hat. But his hands were scarcely at liberty before he turned it twice. Immediately the cannon began to thunder and struck down everything and the king's daughter herself was forced to come and beg for mercy. As she entreated in such moving terms and promised to change, he allowed himself to be persuaded and granted her peace. She behaved in a friendly manner to him and acted as if she loved him very much and after some time managed to so fool him that he confided to her that even if someone got the knapsack into his power, he could do nothing against him so long as the old hat was still his. 
When she knew the secret, she waited until he was asleep, and then she took the hat away from him and had it thrown out into the street. But the horn still remained to him, and in great anger he blew it with all his strength. Instantly, all walls, fortifications, towns and villages toppled down and crushed the king and his daughter to death. And had he not put down the horn and had blown just a little longer, everything would have been in ruins and not one stone would have been left standing on another. Then no one opposed him any longer and he made himself king of the whole country. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 55. Rumpelstiltskin. Once there was a miller who was poor, but who had a beautiful daughter. Now it happened that he had to go and speak to the king, and in order to make himself appear important, he said to him, I have a daughter who can spin straw into gold. The king said to the miller, That is an art which pleases me well. If your daughter is as clever as you say, bring her tomorrow to my palace, and I will try what she can do. And when the girl was brought to him, he took her into a room, which was quite full of straw, gave her a spinning wheel and a reel, and said, Now, set to work, and if by tomorrow morning early you have not spun this straw into gold during the night, you must die. Thereupon he himself locked up the room and left her in it alone. So there sat the poor miller's daughter, and for the life of her could not tell what to do. She had no idea how straw could be spun into gold, and she grew more and more miserable, until at last she began to weep. But all at once the door opened, and in came a little man, and said, "'Good evening, Mistress Miller. Why are you crying so?' "'Alas!' answered the girl, "'I have to spin straw into gold, and I do not know how to do it.' "'What will you give me,' said the mannequin, "'if I do it for you?' "'My necklace,' said the girl. "'The little man took the necklace, seated himself in front of the wheel, "'and whirr, 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 three turns, and the reel was full.' Then he put another on, and were, were, were three times round, and the second was full too. And so it went on until the morning, when all the straw was spun, and all the reels were full of gold. By daybreak the king was already there, and when he saw the gold, he was astonished and delighted, but his heart became only more greedy. He had the miller's daughter taken into another room full of straw, which was much larger, and commanded her to spin that also in one night, if she valued her life. The girl knew not how to help herself and was crying when the door again opened, and the little man appeared and said, What will you give me 
if I spin that straw into gold for you. The ring on my finger, answered the girl. The little man took the ring, again began to turn the wheel, and by morning had spun all the straw into glittering gold. The king rejoiced beyond measure at the sight, but still he had not enough gold, and he had the miller's daughter taken into a still larger room full of straw, and said, You must spin this too, in the course of this night, but if you succeed, you shall be my wife. And he thought, Even if she be a miller's daughter, I could not find a richer wife in the whole world. When the girl was alone, the mannequin came again for the third time and said, What will you give me if I spin the straw for you this time also? I have nothing left that I could give, answered the girl. Then promise me, if you should become queen, your first child. Who knows whether that will happen, thought the miller's daughter, and not knowing how else to help herself in this strait, she promised the mannequin what he wanted, and for that he once more spanned the straw into gold. And when the king came in the morning and found all as he had wished, he took her in marriage, and the pretty miller's daughter became a queen. A year after, she had a beautiful child, and she never gave a thought to the mannequin. But suddenly he came into her room and said, Now, give me what you promised. The queen was horror-struck, and offered the mannequin all the riches of the kingdom if he would leave her the child. But the mannequin said, No, something that is living is dearer to me than all the treasures in the world. Then the queen began to weep and cry, so that the mannequin pitied her. I will give you three days' time, said he, if by that time you find out my name, then you shall keep your child. So the queen fought the whole night of all the names that she had ever heard, and she sent a messenger over the country to inquire far and wide for any other names that there might be. When the mannequin came the next day, she began with Caspar, Melchior, Baltazar, and said all the names that she knew, one after another. But to everyone the little man said, That is not my name. On the second day she had inquiries made in the neighbourhood as to the names of people there, and she repeated to the mannequin, the most uncommon and curious, Perhaps your name is Short Ribs, or Sheepshanks, or Lace Leg. But he always answered, That is not my name. On the third day, the messenger came back and said, I have not been able to find a single new name. But as I came to a high mountain at the end of the forest where the fox and the hare bid each other good night, there I saw a little house, and before the house a fire was burning, and round about the fire quite a ridiculous little man was jumping. He jumped upon one leg and shouted, Today I bake, tomorrow brew, 
that next I'll have the young queen's child. Ha! Glad am I that no one knew that Rumpelstiltskin I am styled. You may think how glad the queen was when she heard the name. And when soon afterwards the little man came in and asked, Now, Mistress Queen, what is my name? At first she said, Is your name Conrad? No. Is your name Harry? No. Perhaps your name is Rumpelstiltskin. The devil has told you that! The devil has told you that, cried the little man, and in his anger he plunged his right foot so deep into the earth that his whole leg went in, and then in rage he pulled at his left leg so hard with both hands that he tore himself in two. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 56. Sweetheart Roland There was once on a time a woman who was a real witch and had two daughters, one ugly and wicked, and this one she loved because she was her own daughter, and one beautiful and good and this one she hated because she was her stepdaughter. The stepdaughter once had a pretty apron, which the other fancied so much that she became envious and told her mother that she must and would have that apron. Be quiet, my child, said the old woman, and you shall have it. Your stepsister has long deserved death. Tonight, when she is asleep, I will come and cut her head off. Only be careful that you are at the far side of the bed, and push her well to the front. It would have been all over with the poor girl if she had not just then been standing in a corner and heard everything. All day long she dared not go out of doors, and when bedtime had come, the witch's daughter got into bed first, so as to lie at the far side, but when she was asleep... The other pushed her gently to the front and took for herself the place at the back, close by the wall. In the night, the old woman came creeping in. She held an axe in her right hand and felt with her left to see if anyone was lying on the outside and then she grasped the axe with both hands and cut her own child's head off. When she had gone away, the girl got up and went to her sweetheart, who was called Roland, and knocked at his door. When he came out, she said to him, Hear me, dearest Roland, we must fly in all haste. My stepmother wanted to kill me, but has struck her own child. When daylight comes, and she sees what she has done, we shall be lost. But, said Roland, I counsel you first to take away her magic wand, or we cannot escape if she pursues us. The maiden fetched the magic wand, and she took the dead girl's head and dropped three drops of blood on the ground, one in front of the bed, one in the kitchen, and one on the stairs. 
Then she hurried away with her lover. When the old witch got up next morning, she called her daughter and wanted to give her the apron, but she did not come. Then the witch cried, Where are you? Here on the stairs, I am sweeping, answered the first drop of blood. The old woman went out, but saw no one on the stairs and cried again, Where are you? Here in the kitchen, I am warming myself, cried the second drop of blood. She went into the kitchen, but found no one. Then she cried again, Where are you? Ah, here in the bed, I am sleeping, cried the third drop of blood. She went into the room, to the bed. What did she see there? Her own child, whose head she had cut off, bathed in her blood. The witch fell into a passion, sprang to the window, and as she could look forth, quite far into the world, she perceived her stepdaughter hurrying away with her sweetheart, Roland. That shall not serve you, cried she, even if you have gone a long way off, you still shall not escape me. She put on her boots, in which she went an hour's walk with every step, and it was not long before she overtook them. The girl, however, when she saw the old woman striding towards her, used her magic wand to change her sweetheart Roland into a lake, and herself into a duck swimming in the middle of it. The witch placed herself on the shore, threw breadcrumbs in, and took great pains to entice the duck, but the duck did not let herself be enticed, and the old woman had to go home at night as she had come. At this the girl and her sweetheart Roland resumed their natural shapes again, and they walked on the whole night until daybreak. Then the maiden changed herself into a beautiful flower which stood in the middle of a briar hedge, and her sweetheart Roland into a fiddler. It was not long before the witch came striding up towards them and said to the musician, Dear musician, may I pluck that beautiful flower for myself? Oh yes, he replied, I will play to you while you do it. As she was hastily creeping into the hedge and was just going to pluck the flower, for she well knew who the flower was, he began to play, and whether she would like it or not, she was forced to dance, for it was a magical dance. The quicker he played, the more violent springs she was forced to make, and the fawns tore her clothes from her body and pricked her and wounded her till she bled, and as he did not stop, she had to dance till she lay dead on the ground. When they were saved, Roland said, Now I will go to my father and arrange for the wedding. Then, in the meantime, I will stay here and wait for you, said the girl, and that no one may recognise me, I will change myself into a red millstone. Then Roland went away, and the girl stood like a red millstone in the field and waited for her beloved. But when Roland got home, he fell into the snares of another who prevailed on him so far that he forgot the maiden.
The poor girl remained there a long time, but at length, as he did not return at all, she was sad, and changed herself into a flower and thought, Someone will surely come this way and trample me down. It happened, however, that a shepherd kept his sheep in the field and saw the flower, and as it was so pretty, plucked it, took it with him, and laid it away in his chest. From that time forth, strange things happened in the shepherd's house. When he arose in the morning, all the work was already done. The room was swept, the table and benches cleaned, the fire on the hearth was lighted, and the water was fetched, and at noon, when he came home, the table was laid and a good dinner served. He could not conceive how this came to pass, for he never saw a human being in his house, and no one could have concealed himself in it. He was certainly pleased with this good attendance, but still at last he was so afraid that he went to a wise woman and asked for her advice. The wise woman said, There is some enchantment behind it. Listen very early some morning, if anything is moving in the room. And if you see anything, let it be what it may, throw a white cloth over it, and then the magic will be stopped. The shepherd did as she bade him. And next morning, just as day dawned, he saw the chest open and the flower come out. Swiftly he sprang towards it and threw a white cloth over it. Instantly the transformation came to an end, and a beautiful girl stood before him who told him that she had been the flower, and that up to this time she had attended to his housekeeping. She told him her story, and since she pleased him, he asked her if she would marry him, but she answered no, for she wanted to remain faithful to her sweetheart Roland, although he had deserted her. However, she promised not to go away, but to go on keeping house for the shepherd. And now the time drew near when Roland's wedding was to be celebrated, and then, according to an old custom in the country, it was announced that all the girls were to be present at it and sing in honour of the bridal pair. When the faithful maiden heard of this, she grew so sad that she thought her heart would break and she would not go, but the other girls came and took her. When her turn came to sing, she stepped back until at last she was the only one left, and then she could not refuse. But when she began her song and it reached Roland's ears, he sprang up and cried, I know the voice, that is the true bride, I will have no other. Everything he had forgotten and which had vanished from his mind had suddenly come home again to his heart. Then the faithful maiden held her wedding with her sweetheart Roland and grief came to an end and joy began. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 57. The Golden Bird In olden times, 
there was a king who was behind his palace a beautiful garden in which there was a tree that bore golden apples. When the apples were getting ripe, they were counted, but on the very next morning one was missing. This was told to the king, and he ordered that a watch should be kept every night beneath the tree. The king had three sons, the eldest of whom he sent, as soon as night came on, into the garden, but when midnight came he could not keep himself from sleeping, and next morning again an apple was gone. The following night the second son had to keep watch. It fared no better with him. As soon as twelve o'clock had struck, he fell asleep, and in the morning an apple was gone. Now it came to the turn of the third son to watch, and he was quite ready, but the king had not much trust in him, and thought that he would be of less use even than his brothers. But at last he let him go. The youth lay down beneath the tree, but kept awake, and did not sleep. Master him. When it struck twelve, something rustled through the air, and in the moonlight he saw a bird coming, whose feathers were all shining with gold. The bird alighted on the tree, and had just plucked off an apple, when the youth shot an arrow at him. The bird flew off, but the arrow had struck his plumage, and one of his golden feathers fell down. The youth picked it up, and the next morning took it to the king and told him what he had seen in the night. The king called his council together, and everyone declared that a feather like this was worth more than the whole kingdom. If the feather is so precious, declared the king, one alone will not do for me. I must and will have the whole bird. The eldest son set out. He trusted to his cleverness and thought that he would easily find the golden bird. When he had gone some distance, he saw a fox sitting at the edge of a wood, so he cocked his gun and took aim at him. The fox cried, Do not shoot me, and in return I will give you some good counsel. You are on the way to the golden bird, and this evening you will come to a village in which stand two inns opposite to one another. One of them is lighted up brightly, and all goes on merrily within, but do not go into it. Go rather into the other, even though it seems a bad one. How can such a silly beast give wise advice, thought the king's son, and he pulled the trigger. But he missed the fox, who stretched out his tail and ran quickly into the wood. So he pursued his way, and by evening came to a village where the two inns were. In one they were singing and dancing, the other had a poor miserable look. I should be a fool indeed, he thought, if I were to go into the shabby tavern and pass by the good one. So he went into the cheerful one, lived there in riot and revel, and forgot the bird and his father, and all good counsels. When some time had passed, and the eldest son, for month after month, did not come back home, the second set out, wishing to find the golden bird. The fox met him, as he had met the eldest, and gave him the good advice of which he took no heed. He came 
to the two inns, and his brother was standing at the window of the one from which came the music, and called out to him. He could not resist, but went inside, and lived only for pleasure. Again some time passed, and then the king's youngest son wanted to set off and try his luck, but his father would not allow it. It is of no use, said he. He will find the golden bird no better than his brothers, and if a mishap were to befall him, he knows not how to help himself. He is a little wanting at the best. But at last, as he had no peace, he let him go. Again the fox was sitting outside the wood, and begged for his life, and offered his good advice. The youth was good-natured, and said, Be easy, little fox, I will do you no harm. You shall not repent it, answered the fox, and that you may get on more quickly. Get up behind on my tail. And scarcely had he seated himself when the fox began to run, and away he went over stock and stone till his hair whistled in the wind. When they came to the village, the youth got off. He followed the good advice and, without looking round, turned into the little inn, where he spent the night quietly. The next morning, as soon as he got into the open country, there sat the fox already and said, I will tell you further what you have to do. Go on quite straight, and at last you will come to a castle, in front of which a whole regiment of soldiers is lying, but do not trouble yourself about them for they will all be asleep and snoring. Go through the midst of them straight into the castle and go through all the rooms till at last you come to a chamber where a golden bird is hanging in a wooden cage. Close by there stands an empty gold cage for show. But beware of taking the bird out of the common cage and putting it into the fine one, or it may go badly for you. With these words the fox again stretched out his tail, and the king's son seated himself upon it, and away he went over stock and stone till his hair whistled in the wind. When he came to the castle he found everything as the fox had said. The king's son went into the chamber where the golden bird was shut up in a wooden cage, while a golden one stood nearby, and the three golden apples lay about the room. But, thought he, it would be absurd if I were to leave the beautiful bird in the common and ugly cage. So he opened the door, laid hold of it, and put it into the golden cage. But at the same moment the bird uttered a shrill cry. The soldiers awoke, rushed in, and took him off to prison. The next morning he was taken before a court of justice, and as he confessed everything, was sentenced to death. The king, however, said that he would grant him his life on one condition, namely, if he brought him the golden horse, which ran faster than the wind, and in that case he should receive, over and above, as a reward, the golden bird. The king's son set off, but he sighed and was sorrowful, for how was he to find the golden horse? But all at once he saw his old friend the fox sitting on the road. Look, said the fox, this has happened because you did not give heed to me. However, be of good courage. I will give you my help, and tell you how to get to the golden horse. 
you must go straight on, and you will come to a castle where in the stable stands the horse. The grooms will be lying in front of the stable, but they will be asleep and snoring, and you can quietly lead out the golden horse. But of one thing you must take heed. Put on him the common saddle of wooden leather, and not the golden one which hangs close by, else it will go badly for you. Then the fox stretched out his tail, the king's son seated himself upon it, and away he went over stock and stone until his hair whistled in the wind. Everything happened just as the fox had said. The prince came to the stable in which the golden horse was standing, but just as he was going to put the common saddle upon him, he thought, It will be a shame to such a beautiful beast if I do not give him the good saddle which belongs to him by right. But scarcely had the golden saddle touched the horse than he began to neigh loudly. The grooms awoke, seized the youth, and threw him into prison. The next morning he was sentenced by the court to death, but the king promised to grant him his life, and the golden horse as well, if he could bring back the beautiful princess from the golden castle. With a heavy heart the youth set out, yet luckily for him he soon found the trusty fox. I ought only to leave you to your bad luck, said the fox, but I pity you, and will help you once more out of your trouble. This road takes you straight to the golden castle. You will reach it by evening, and at night, when everything is quiet, the beautiful princess goes to the bathing house to bathe. When she enters it, run up to her and give her a kiss. Then she will follow you, and you can take her away with you. Only do not allow her to take leave of her parents first, or it will go badly for you. Then the fox stretched out his tail, the king's son seated himself upon it, and away the fox went, over stock and stone, till his hair whistled in the wind. When he reached the golden castle, it was just as the fox had said. He waited until midnight, when everything lay in deep sleep, and the beautiful princess was going to the bathing house. Then he sprang out and gave her a kiss. She said that she would like to go with him, but she asked him pitifully and with tears to allow her first to take leave of her parents. At first he withstood her prayer, but when she wept more and more and fell at his feet, he at last gave in. But no sooner had the maiden reached the bedside of her father than he and all the rest of the castle awoke and the youth was laid hold of and put into prison. The next morning the king said to him, Your life is forfeited, and you can only find mercy if you take away the hill which stands in front of my windows and prevents my seeing beyond it, and you must finish it all within eight days. If you do that, you shall have my daughter as your reward. The king's son began, and dug and shoveled without leaving off, but when after seven days he saw how little he had done, and how all his work was as good as nothing, he fell into great sorrow and gave up all hope. But on the evening of the seventh day the fox appeared and said, You do not deserve that I should take any trouble for you. 
but just go away and lie down to sleep, and I will do the work for you. The next morning, when he awoke and looked out of the window, the hill had gone. The youth ran full of joy to the king and told him that the task was fulfilled, and whether he liked it or not, the king had to hold to his word and give him his daughter. So the two set forth together, and it was not long before the trusty fox came up with them. You have certainly got what is best, said he, but the golden horse also belongs to the maiden of the golden castle. How shall I get it? asked the youth. That I will tell you, answered the fox. First take the beautiful maiden to the king, who sent you to the golden castle. There will be unheard of rejoicing. They will gladly give you the golden horse and will bring it out to you, mount it as soon as possible, and offer your hand to all in farewell, last of all to the beautiful maiden. And as soon as you have taken her hand, swing her up onto the horse and gallop away, and no one will be able to bring you back, for the horse runs faster than the wind." All was carried out successfully, and the king's son carried off the beautiful princess on the golden horse. The fox did not remain behind and said to the youth, Now I will help you to get the golden bird. When you come near the castle where the golden bird is to be found, let the maiden get down, and I will take her into my care. Then ride with the golden horse into the castle yard. There will be great rejoicing at the sight, and they will bring out the golden bird for you. As soon as you have the cage in your hand, gallop back to us, and take the maiden away again. When the plan had succeeded, and the king's son was about to ride home with his treasures, the fox said, Now you shall reward me for my help. What do you require for it? asked the youth. When you get into the wood yonder, shoot me dead and chop off my head and feet. That would be fine gratitude, said the king's son. I cannot possibly do that for you. The fox said, If you will not do it, I must leave you. But before I go away, I will give you a piece of good advice. Be careful about two things. Buy no gallows flesh, and do not sit at the edge of any well. And then he ran into the wood. The youth thought, That is a wonderful beast. He has strange whims. Who is going to buy gallows flesh? And the desire to sit at the edge of a well has never yet seized me. He rode on with the beautiful maiden, and his road took him again through the village in which his two brothers had remained. There was a great stir and noise, and when he asked what was going on, he was told that two men were going to be hanged. As he came nearer to the place, he saw that they were his brothers, who had been playing all kinds of wicked pranks, and had squandered all their wealth. He inquired whether they could not be set free. If you will pay for them, answered the people, but why should you waste your money on wicked men and buy them free? 
he did not think twice about it, but paid for them, and when they were set free, they all went on their way together. They came to the wood where the fox had first met them, and as it was cool and pleasant there, the two brothers said, Let us rest a little by the well and eat and drink. He agreed, and while they were talking, he forgot himself and sat down upon the edge of the well without thinking of any evil. But the two brothers threw him backwards into the well, took the maiden, the horse and the bird, and went home to their father. Here we bring you, not only the golden bird, said they, we have won the golden horse also, and the maiden from the golden castle. Then was there great joy, but the horse would not eat, the bird would not sing, and the maiden sat and wept. But the youngest brother was not dead. By good fortune the well was dry, and he fell upon soft moss without being hurt. But he could not get out again. Even in this strait the faithful fox did not leave him. It came and leapt down to him and upbraided him for having forgotten its advice. But yet I cannot give it up so. He said, I will help you up again into daylight. He bade him grasp his tail and keep tight hold of it. And then he pulled him up. You are not out of all danger yet, said the fox. Your brothers were not sure of your death and have surrounded the wood with watchers who are to kill you if you let yourself be seen. But a poor man was sitting on the road with whom the youth changed clothes and in this way he got to the king's palace. No one knew him, but the bird began to sing, the horse began to eat, and the beautiful maiden left off weeping. The king, astonished, asked, What does this mean? Then the maiden said, I do not know, but I have been so sorrowful, and now I am so happy. I feel as if my true bridegroom has come. She told him all that had happened, although the other brothers had threatened her with death if she were to betray anything. The king commanded that all people who were in his castle should be brought before him, and amongst them came the youth in his ragged clothes, but the maiden knew him at once and fell upon his neck. The wicked brothers were seized and put to death, but he was married to the beautiful maiden and declared heir to the king. But how did it fare with the poor fox? Long afterwards the king's son was once walking in the wood when the fox met him and said, You have everything now that you can wish for, but there is never an end to my misery, and yet it is in your power to free me. And again he asked him with tears to shoot him dead and chop off his head and feet. So he did it, and scarcely was it done when the fox was changed into a man, and was no other than the brother of the beautiful princess, who at last was freed from the magic charm which had been laid upon him, and now they never lacked in happiness as long as they lived. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 58, The Dog 
and the sparrow. A sheepdog had not a good master, but on the contrary, one who let him suffer hunger. As he could stay no longer with him, he went quite sadly away. On the road he met a sparrow, who said, Brother dog, why are you so sad? The dog replied, I am hungry and have nothing to eat. Then the sparrow said, Dear brother, come into the town with me, and I will satisfy your hunger. So they went into the town together, and when they came in front of a butcher's shop, the sparrow said to the dog, Stay there, and I will pick a bit of meat down for you. And he alighted on the stall, looked about him to see that no one was observing him, and pecked and pulled and tore so long at a piece which lay on the edge that it slipped down. Then the dog seized it, ran into the corner, and devoured it. The sparrow said, Now come with me to another shop, and then I will get you one more piece that you may be satisfied. When the dog had devoured the second piece as well, the sparrow asked, Brother dog, have you now had enough? Yes, I have had meat enough, he answered, but I have had no bread yet. Said the sparrow, You shall have that also, come with me. Then he took him to a baker's shop, and pecked at a couple of little buns, till they rolled down, and as the dog wanted still more, he led him to another stall, and again got bread for him. When that was consumed, the sparrow said, Brother dog, have you now had enough? Yes, he replied. Now we will walk a while outside the town. Then they both went out onto the highway. It was, however, warm weather, and when they had walked a little way, the dog said, I am tired and would like to sleep. Well, do sleep, answered the sparrow, and in the meantime I will seat myself on a branch. So the dog lay down on the road and fell fast asleep. When he lay sleeping there, a wagoner came driving by who had a cart with three horses laden with two barrels of wine. The sparrow, however, saw that he was not going to turn aside, but was stayed in the wheel track in which the dog was lying. So it cried, Wagoner, don't do it, or I will make you poor. The wagoner, however, growled to himself, You will not make me poor, and cracked his whip, and drove the cart over the dog, and the wheels killed him. Then the sparrow cried, You have run over my brother dog, and killed him. It shall cost you your cart and horses. Cart and horses indeed, said the wagoner. What harm can you do me? And drove onwards. Then the sparrow crept under the cover of the cart and pecked so long at the bung hole of one of the casks that he got the bung out, and then all the wine ran out without the driver noticing it. But once, when he was looking behind him, he saw that the cart was dripping, and looked at the barrels, and saw that one of them was empty. "'Unfortunate fellow that I am!' cried he. "'Not unfortunate enough yet,' said the sparrow, "'and flew onto the head of one of the horses "'and pecked his eyes out.'"
When the driver saw that, he drew out his axe and wanted to hit the sparrow, but the sparrow flew into the air, and he hit his horse on the head, and it fell down dead. Oh, what an unfortunate man I am, cried he. Not unfortunate enough yet, said the sparrow, and when the driver drove on with the two horses, the sparrow again crept under the cover and pecked the bung out of the second cask, so all the wine was spilled. When the driver became aware of it, he again cried, Oh, what an unfortunate man I am! But the sparrow replied, Not unfortunate enough yet, and seated himself on the head of the second horse and pecked his eyes out. The driver ran up to it and raised his axe to strike, but the sparrow flew into the air and the blow struck the horse which fell. Oh, what an unfortunate man I am! Not unfortunate enough yet, said the sparrow, and lighted on the third horse's head and pecked out his eyes. The driver, in his rage, struck at the sparrow without looking round, and did not hit him but killed his third horse likewise. Oh, what an unfortunate man I am, cried he. Not unfortunate enough yet, answered the sparrow. Now will I make you unfortunate in your home, and flew away. The driver had to leave the wagon standing, and full of anger and vexation went home. Ah, said he to his wife, what misfortunes I have had. My wine has run out, and the horses are all three dead. Alas, husband, she answered, what a malicious bird has come into the house. It has gathered together every bird there is in the world, and they have fallen on our corn up there, and are devouring it. Then he went upstairs, and thousands and thousands of birds were sitting in the loft, and had eaten up all the corn, and the sparrow was sitting in the midst of them. Then the driver cried, Oh, what an unfortunate man I am! Not unfortunate enough yet, answered the sparrow. Wagoner, it shall cost you your life as well, and flew out. Then the wagoner had lost all his property, and he went downstairs into the room, sat down behind the stove, and was quite furious and bitter. But the sparrow sat outside in front of the window, and cried, Wagoner, it shall cost you your life. Then the wagoner snatched the axe and threw it at the sparrow, but it only broke the window, and did not hit the bird. The sparrow, now hopped in, placed itself on the stove and cried, Wagoner, it shall cost you your life. The latter, quite mad and blind with rage, hacked the stove in two, and as the sparrow flew from one place to another, chopped all his household furniture, looking-glass, benches, table, and at last the walls of his house, and yet he could not hit the bird. At length, however, he caught it with his hand. Then his wife said, Shall I kill it? No, cried he, that would be too merciful. It shall die much more cruelly. And he took it and swallowed it whole. The sparrow, however, began to flutter about in his body, and fluttered up again into the man's mouth. Then it stretched out his head and cried, Wagner, 
it shall still cost you your life. The driver gave the axe to his wife and said, Wife, kill the bird in my mouth for me. The woman struck but missed her blow and hit the wagoner right on his head so that he fell dead, but the sparrow flew up and away. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 59, Frederick and Catherine. There was once on a time a man who was called Frederick and a woman called Catherine, who had married each other and lived together as young married folks. One day Frederick said, I will now go and plough. Catherine, when I come back, there must be some roast meat on the table for hunger and a fresh draught for thirst. Just go, Frederick, answered Catherine, just go, I will have all ready for you. Therefore, when dinner time drew near, she got a sausage out of the chimney, put it in the frying pan, added some butter to it and set it on the fire. The sausage began to fry and to hiss. Catherine stood beside it and held the handle of the pan, and had her own thoughts as she was doing it. Then it occurred to her, while the sausage is getting done, you could go into the cellar and draw beer. So she set the frying pan safely on the fire, took a can, and went down into the cellar to draw beer. The beer ran into the can, and Catherine watched it, and then she thought, Oh dear! The dog upstairs is not fastened up. It might get the sausage out of the pan. Well thought of. And in a trice she was up the cellar steps again, but the dog had the sausage in its mouth already and trailed it away on the ground. But Catherine, who was not idle, set out after it and chased it a long way into the field. The dog, however, was swifter than Catherine and did not let the sausage journey easily but skipped over the furrows with it. What's gone is gone, said Catherine and turned round and as she had run till she was weary she now walked quietly and comfortably and cooled herself. During this time the beer was still running out of the cask for Catherine had not turned the tap. And when the can was full and there was no place for it, it ran into the cellar and did not stop until the whole cask was empty. As soon as Catherine was on the steps, she saw the mischance. Good gracious, she cried, what shall I do now to stop Frederick knowing it? She fought for a while, and at last she remembered that up in the loft was still standing a sack of the finest wheat flour from the last fair, and she would fetch that down and strew it over the beer. Yes, said she, he who saves a thing when he ought has it afterwards when he needs it. And she climbed up the loft and carried the sack below and threw it straight down on the can of beer, which she knocked over, and Frederick's draught swam also in the cellar. It is all right, said Catherine. Where the one is, the other ought to be also. 
and she strewed the meal over the whole cellar. When it was done, she was heartily delighted with her work and said, How clean and wholesome it does look here. At midday, Frederick came home. Now, wife, what have you ready for me? Ah, Freddy, she answered, I was frying a sausage for you, but while I was drawing the beer to drink with it, the dog took it away out of the pan, and while I was running after the dog, all the beer ran out, and while I was drying up the beer with the flour, I knocked over the can as well. But be easy, the cellar is quite dry again, said Frederick. Catherine, Catherine! You should not have done that, to let the sausage be carried off and the beer run out of the cask and throw out all our flour too. Indeed, Frederick, I did not know that. You should have told me. The man thought, If my wife is like this, I must look after things more. Now he had got together a good number of talkers, which he changed into gold, and said to Catherine, Look, these are counters for playing games. I will put them in a pot and bury them in the stable, under the cow's manger. But mind you, keep away from them, or it will be the worse for you. Said she, Oh no, Frederick, I certainly will stay away. And when Frederick was gone, some peddlers came into the village who had cheap earthen bowls and pots and asked the young woman if there was nothing she wanted to bargain in exchange for them. Oh dear people, said Catherine, I have no money and can buy nothing, but if you have any use for yellow counters, I will buy from you. Yellow counters, why not? but just let us see them. Then go into the stable and dig under the cow's manger, and you will find the yellow counters. I am not allowed to go there. The rogues went there, dug and found pure gold. Then they laid hold of it, ran away, and left their pots and bowls behind in the house. Catherine thought she must use her new things, and as she had no lack in the kitchen already without these, she knocked the bottom out of every pot, and set them all as ornaments on the fence which went round about the house. When Frederick came and saw the new decorations, he said, Catherine, what have you been doing? I have bought them, Frederick. For the counters which were under the cow's manger, I did not go there myself. The peddlers had to dig them out for themselves. Ah, wife, said Frederick, what have you done? Those were not counters, but pure gold and all our wealth. You should not have done that. Indeed, Frederick, said she, I did not know that, but you should have forewarned me. Catherine stood for a while and thought to herself. Then she said, Listen, Frederick, we will soon get the gold back again. We will run after the thieves. Come then, said Frederick, we will try it, but take with you some butter and cheese, that we may have something to eat on the way. Yes, Frederick, I will take them, 
They set out, and as Frederick was the better walker, Catherine followed him. It is to my advantage, thought she. When we turn back, I shall be a little way in advance. Then she came to a hill where there were deep ruts on both sides of the road. There one can see, said Catherine, how they have torn and skinned and galled the poor earth. It will never be whole again as long as it lives. And in her heart's compassion she took her butter and smeared the ruts right and left, that they might not be hurt by the wheels. And as she was thus bending down in her charity, one of the cheeses rolled out of her pocket down the hill. Said Catherine, I have made my way once up here. I will not go down again. Another may run and fetch it back. So she took another cheese and rolled it down. But the cheeses did not come back. So she let a third run down, thinking, Perhaps they are waiting for company, and do not like to walk alone. As all three strayed away, she said, I do not know what that can mean, but it may perhaps be that the third has not found the way, and has gone wrong. I will just send the fourth to call it. But the fourth did know better than the third. Then Catherine was angry and threw down the fifth and sixth as well, and these were her last. She remained standing for some time, watching for their coming, but when they still did not come, she said, Oh, you are good folks to send in search of death. You stay a fine long time away. Do you think I will wait any longer for you? I shall go my way. You may run after me. You have younger legs than I. Catherine went on and found Frederick, who was standing waiting for her because he wanted something to eat. Now just let us have what you have brought with you, said he. She gave him the dry bread. Where have you the butter and the cheeses, asked the man. Ah, Freddy, said Catherine, I smeared the cart ruts with the butter and the cheeses will come soon. One ran away from me, so I sent the others after to call it. Said Frederick, you should not have done that, Catherine, to smear the butter on the road and let the cheeses run down the hill. Really, Frederick, you should have told me. Then they ate the dry bread together, and Frederick said, Catherine, did you make the house safe when you came away? No, Frederick, you should have told me to do it before. Then go home again and make the house safe before we go any farther, and bring with you something else to eat. I will wait here for you. Catherine went back and thought, Frederick wants something more to eat. He does not like butter and cheese, so I will take with me a handkerchief full of dried pears and a pitcher of vinegar for him. Then she bolted the upper half of the door fast, but unhinged the lower door, and took it on her back, believing that when she had placed the door in security, the house must be well taken care of. Catherine took her time on the way, and thought, Frederick will rest himself so much the longer. When she had once reached him, she said, Here is the door for you, Frederick, 
and now you can take care of the house yourself. Oh heavens, said he, what a wise wife I have. She takes the underdoor off the hinges that everything may run in and bolts the upper one. It is now too late to go back home again, but since you have brought the door here, you shall just carry it farther. I will carry the door, Frederick, but the dried pears and the vinegar jug will be too heavy for me. I will hang them on the door. It, it may carry them. And now they went into the forest and sought the rogues, but did not find them. At length, as it grew dark, they climbed into a tree and resolved to spend the night there. Scarcely, however, had they sat down at the top of it than the rascals came to carry away with them what does not want to go and find things before they are lost. They sat down under the very tree in which Frederick and Catherine were sitting, lighted a fire, and were about to share their booty. Frederick got down on the other side and collected some stones together. Then he climbed up again with them and wished to throw them at the thieves and kill them. The stones, however, did not hit them, and the knaves cried, It will soon be morning. The wind is shaking down the fir apples. Catherine still had the door on her back, and as it pressed so heavily on her, she thought it was the fault of the dried pears, and said, Frederick, I must throw the pears down. No, Catherine, not now, he replied. They might betray us. Oh, but Frederick, I must. They weigh me down far too much. Do it. Then and be hanged. Then the dried pears rolled down between the branches, and the rascals below said, The leaves are falling. A short time afterwards, as the door was still heavy, Catherine said, Ah, Frederick, I must pour out the vinegar. No, Catherine, you must not. It might betray us. Ah, but Frederick, I must. It weighs me down far too much. Then do it and be hanged. So she emptied out the vinegar, and it besprinkled the robbers. They said amongst themselves, The dew is already falling. At length Catherine thought, Can it really be the door which weighs me down so? And said, Frederick, I must throw the door down. No, not now, Catherine, it might reveal us. Oh, but Frederick, I must. It weighs me down far too much. Oh no, Catherine, do hold it fast. Ah, Frederick, I am letting it fall. Let it go then in the devil's name. Then it fell down with a violent clatter, and the rascals below cried, The devil is coming down the tree, and they ran away and left everything behind them. Early next morning, when the two came down, they found all their gold again and carried it home. When they were once more at home, Frederick said, And now, Catherine, you too must be industrious and work. Yes, Frederick, I will soon do that. I will go into the field and cut corn. When Catherine got into the field, she said to herself, Shall I eat before I cut, or shall I sleep before I cut? 
Oh, I will eat first. Then Catherine ate, and eating made her sleepy, and she began to cut, and half in a dream cut all her clothes to pieces, her apron, her gown, and her shift. When Catherine awoke again after a long sleep, she was standing there half naked, and said to herself, Is it I, or is it not I? Alas, it is not I. Soon night came, and Catherine ran into the village, knocked at her husband's window, and cried, Frederick, what is the matter? I should very much like to know if Catherine is in. Yes, yes, replied Frederick, she must be in and asleep. Said she, "'Tis well, then I am certainly at home already, and ran away. Outside, Catherine found some vagabonds who were going to steal. Then she went to them and said, "'I will help you to steal.' The rascals thought that she knew of a good place and opportunity, and were glad. But Catherine went in front of the houses and cried, "'Good folks, have you anything? We want to steal.' The thieves fought to themselves. That's a fine way of doing things, and wished themselves once more rid of Catherine. Then they said to her, Outside the village the pastor has some turnips in the field. Go there and pull up some turnips for us. Catherine went to the ground and began to pull them up, but was so idle that she did not gather them together. Then a man came by, saw her, and stood still, and thought that it was the devil who was thus rooting amongst the turnips. He ran away into the village to the pastor and said, Mr. Pastor, the devil is in your turnip field, rooting up turnips. Ah, heavens, answered the pastor, I have a lame foot, I cannot go out and drive him away. Said the man, then I will carry you on my back. And he carried him out on his back. And when they came to the ground, Catherine arose and stood up her full height. Ah, the devil, cried the pastor, and both hurried away. And in his great fright, the pastor could run better with his lame foot than the man who had carried him on his back could do with his sound one. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 60. The Two Brothers There were once upon a time two brothers, one rich and the other poor. The rich one was a goldsmith and evil-hearted. The poor one supported himself by making brooms and was good and honourable. The poor one had two children, who were twin brothers, and as like each other as two drops of water. The two boys went backwards and forwards to the rich house and often got some of the scraps to eat. It happened once when the poor man was going into the forest to fetch brushwood that he saw a bird which was quite golden and more beautiful than any he had ever chanced to meet with. He picked up a small stone, threw it at him, and was lucky enough to hit him, but only one golden feather fell down, and the bird flew away. The man took the feather and carried it to his brother, who looked at it and said, It is pure gold, 
and gave him a great deal of money for it. Next day the man climbed into a birch tree and was about to cut off a couple of branches when the same bird flew out and when the man searched he found a nest and an egg lay inside it which was of gold. He took the egg home with him and carried it to his brother who again said it is pure gold and gave him what it was worth. At last the goldsmith said I should indeed like to have the bird itself. The poor man went into the forest for the third time and again saw the golden bird sitting on the tree so he took a stone and knocked it down and carried it to his brother who gave him a great heap of gold for it. Now I can get on, thought he and went contentedly home. The goldsmith was crafty and cunning and knew very well what kind of a bird it was. He called his wife and said, Roast me the gold bird, and take care that none of it is lost. I have a fancy to eat it all myself. The bird, however, was no common one, but of so wondrous a kind that whoever ate its heart and liver found every morning a piece of gold beneath his pillow. The woman made the bird ready, put it on the spit, and let it roast. Now it happened that while it was on the fire and the woman was forced to go out of the kitchen on account of some other work, the two children of the poor broom maker ran in, stood by the spit and turned it round once or twice. And as at that very moment two little bits of the bird fell down into the dripping tray, one of the boys said, We will eat these two little bits. I am so hungry, and no one will ever miss them. Then the two ate the pieces, but the woman came into the kitchen and saw that they were eating something and said, What have you been eating? Two little morsels which fell out of the bird, answered they. That must have been the heart and the liver, said the woman quite frightened, so that her husband might not miss them, and be angry, she quickly killed a cock, took out his heart and liver, and put them beside the golden bird. When it was ready, she carried it to the goldsmith, who consumed it all alone, and left none of it. Next morning, however, when he felt beneath his pillow, and expected to bring out the piece of gold, no more gold pieces were there, than there had always been. The two children did not know what a piece of good fortune had fallen to their lot. Next morning, when they arose, something fell rattling to the ground, and when they picked it up, there were two gold pieces. They took them to their father, who was astonished, and said, How can that have happened? When the next morning they again found two, and so on daily, he went to his brother and told him the strange story. The goldsmith at once knew how it had come to pass, and that the children had eaten the heart and liver of the golden bird, and in order to avenge himself, and because he was envious and hard-hearted, he said to the father, Your children are in league with the evil one. Do not take the gold, and do not suffer them to stay any longer in your house. For he has them in his power, 
and may ruin you likewise. The father feared the evil one, and painful as it was to him, he nevertheless led the twins forth into the forest, and with a sad heart left them there. And now the two children ran about the forest and sought the way home again, but could not find it, and only lost themselves more and more. At length they met with a hunter, who asked, To whom do you children belong? We are the poor broom-makers, boys, they replied, and they told him that their father would not keep them any longer in the house because a piece of gold lay every morning under their pillows. Come, said the hunter, that is not so very bad, if at the same time you keep honest and are not idle. As the good man liked the children and had none of his own, he took them home with him and said, I will be your father and bring you up till you are big. They learned huntership from him and the piece of gold, which each of them found when he awoke, was kept for them by him in case they should need it in the future. When they were grown up, their foster father one day took them into the forest with him and said, Today you shall make your trial shot, so that I may release you from your apprenticeship and make you hunters. They went with him to lie in wait and stayed there a long time, but no game appeared. The hunter, however, looked above him and saw a covey of wild geese flying in the form of a triangle and said to one of them, Shoot me down one from each corner. He did it and thus accomplished his trial shot. Soon after another covey came flying by in the form of the figure two and the hunter bade the other also bring down one from each corner and his trial shot was likewise successful. Now, said the foster father, I pronounce you out of your apprenticeship. You are skilled hunters. Thereupon the two brothers went forth together into the forest and took counsel with each other and planned something. And in the evening, when they'd sat down to supper, they said to their foster father, we will not touch food or take one mouthful until you have granted us a request. Said he, What then is your request? They replied, We have now finished learning and we must prove ourselves in the world so allow us to go away and travel. Then spoke the old man joyfully, You talk like brave hunters that which you desire has been my wish. Go forth, all will go well with you. Thereupon they ate and drank joyously together. When the appointed day came, their foster father presented each of them with a good gun and a dog, and let each of them take as many of his saved-up gold pieces as he chose. Then he accompanied them a part of the way, and when taking leave, he gave them a bright knife and said, If ever you separate, stick this knife into a tree at the place where you part. And when one of you goes back, he will be able to see how his absent brother is faring. 
for the side of the knife, which is turned in the direction that he went, will rust if he dies, but will remain bright as long as he is alive. The two brothers went still farther onwards, and came to a forest which was so large that it was impossible for them to get out of it in one day. So they passed the night in it, and ate what they had put in their hunting pouches, but they walked all the second day likewise, and still did not get out. As they had nothing to eat, one of them said, We must shoot something for ourselves, or we shall suffer from hunger, and loaded his gun, and looked about him. And when an old hare came running up towards them, he laid his gun on his shoulder, but the hare cried, Dear hunters, do but let me live, two little ones to you I'll give, and sprang instantly into the thicket and brought two young ones. But the little creatures played so merrily and were so pretty that the hunters could not find it in their hearts to kill them. They therefore kept them with them, and the little hares followed on foot. Soon after this, a fox crept past. They were just going to shoot it, but the fox cried, Dear hunters, do but let me live. Two little ones I'll also give. He too brought two little foxes, and the hunters did not like to kill them either, but gave them to the hares for company, and they followed behind. It was not long after, before a wolf strode out of the thicket. The hunters made ready to shoot him, but the wolf cried, Dear hunters, do but let me live, two little ones I'll likewise give. The hunters put the two wolves beside the other animals, and they followed behind. Then a bear came who wanted to trot about a little longer, and cried, Dear hunters, do but let me live, two little ones I too will give. The two young bears were added to the others, and there were already eight of them. At length who came, a lion came, and tossed his mane, but the hunters did not let themselves be frightened, and aimed at him likewise. But the lion also said, Dear hunters, do but let me live, two little ones I too will give. As he brought his little ones to them, and now the hunters had two lions, two bears, two wolves, two foxes and two hares, who followed them and served them. In the meantime their hunger was not appeased by this, and they said to the foxes, Listen, cunning fellows, provide us with something to eat. You are crafty and deep. They replied, Not far from here lies a village, from which we have already brought many a fowl. We will show you the way there. So they went into the village, bought themselves something to eat, had some food given to their beasts, and then travelled onwards. The foxes, however, knew their way very well about the district and where the hen houses were, and were able to guide the hunters. Now they travelled about for a while but could find no suitable place where they could remain together. So they said, There is nothing else to do, we must part. They divided the animals, so that each of them had a lion, a bear, a wolf, a fox and a hare. 
Then they took leave of each other, promised to love each other like brothers till their death, and stuck the knife which their foster father had given them into a tree, after which one went east and the other went west. The younger, however, arrived with his beasts in a town which was all hung with black crepe. He went into an inn and asked the host if he could accommodate his animals. The innkeeper gave him a stable where there was a hole in the wall and the hare crept out and fetched himself the head of a cabbage and the fox fetched himself a hen and when he had devoured that got the cock as well but the wolf, the bear and the lion could not get out because they were too big. Then the innkeeper let them be taken to a place where a cow was just then lying on the grass, that they might eat till they were satisfied. And when the hunter had taken care of his animals, he asked the innkeeper why the town was thus hung with black crepe. Said the host, Because our king's only daughter is to die tomorrow. The hunter inquired if she was sick unto death. No, answered the host, she is vigorous and healthy, nevertheless she must die. How is that? asked the hunter. There is a high hill outside the town where dwells a dragon, who every year must have a pure virgin or he will destroy the whole country. And now all the maidens have already been given to him, and there is no longer anyone left but the king's daughter. Yet there is no mercy for her, she must be given up to him, and that is to be done tomorrow. Said the hunter, Why is the dragon not killed? Ah, replied the host, so many knights have tried it, but it has cost all of them their lives. The king has promised that he who conquers the dragon shall have his daughter as wife and shall likewise govern the kingdom after his own death. The hunter said nothing more to this, but next morning took his animals and with them ascended the dragon's hill. A little church stood at the top of it, and on the altar three full cups were standing with the inscription, Whoever empties the cups will become the strongest man on earth, and will be able to wield the sword which is buried before the threshold of the door. The hunter did not drink, but went out and sought for the sword in the ground, but was unable to move it from its place. Then he went in and emptied the cups, and now he was strong enough to take up the sword, and his hand could quite easily wield it. When the hour came when the maiden was to be delivered over to the dragon, the king, the marshal, and courtiers accompanied her. From afar she saw the hunter on the dragon's hill, and thought it was the dragon standing there waiting for her, and did not want to go up to him, but at last, because otherwise the whole town would have been destroyed, she was forced to go the miserable journey. The king and courtiers returned home full of grief. The king's marshal, however, was to remain and see all from a distance. 
When the king's daughter got to the top of the hill, it was not the dragon which stood there, but the young hunter who comforted her and said he would save her, led her into the church and locked her in. It was not long before the seven-headed dragon came there with loud roaring. When he perceived the hunter, he was astonished and said, What business have you here on the hill? The hunter answered, I want to fight you. Said the dragon, Many knights have left their lives here. I shall soon have made an end of you too. And he breathed fire out of seven jaws. The fire was to have lighted the dry grass, and the hunter was to have been suffocated in the heat and smoke. But the animals came running up and trampled out the fire. Then the dragon rushed upon the hunter, but he swung his sword until it sang through the air and struck off three of his heads. Then the dragon grew right furious and rose up in the air and spat out flames of fire over the hunter and was about to plunge down on him, but the hunter once more drew out his sword and again cut off three of his heads. The monster became faint and sank down. Nevertheless, it was just able to rush upon the hunter but with his last strength he slashed its tail off, and as he could fight no longer, called up his animals who tore it in pieces. When the struggle was over, the hunter unlocked the church and found the king's daughter lying on the floor as she had lost her senses with anguish and terror during the contest. He carried her out, and when she came to herself once more and opened her eyes, he showed her the dragon all cut to pieces and told her that she was now safe. She rejoiced and said, Now you will be my dearest husband, for my father has promised me to whoever kills the dragon. Thereupon she took off her necklace of coral and divided it amongst the animals in order to reward them, and the lion received the golden clasp. Her pocket handkerchief which bore her name she gave to the hunter, who went and cut the tongues out of the dragon's seven heads, wrapped them in the handkerchief and preserved them carefully. That done, as he was so faint and weary with the fire and the battle, he said to the maiden, We are both faint and weary, we will sleep a while. Then she said, Yes, and they lay down on the ground, and the hunter said to the lion, You shall keep watch, that no one surprises us in our sleep. And both fell asleep. The lion lay down beside them to watch. But he also was so weary with the fight, that he called to the bear and said, Lie down near me, I must sleep a little. If anything comes, wake me. Then the bear lay down beside him. But he also was tired, and called the wolf, and said, Lie down by me, I must sleep a little, but if anything comes, wake me. Then the wolf lay down by him. 
But he was tired likewise, and called the fox, and said, Lie down by me. I must sleep a little. If anything comes, wake me. Then the fox lay down beside him. But he too was weary, and called the hare, and said, Lie down near me. I must sleep a little. And if anything should come, wake me. Then the hare sat down by him, but the poor hare was tired too, and had no one whom he could call there to keep watch, and fell asleep. And now the king's daughter, the hunter, the lion, the bear, the wolf, the fox, and the hare were all sleeping a sound sleep. The marshal, however, who was to look on from a distance, took courage when he did not see the dragon flying away with the maiden, and finding that all the hill had become quiet, ascended it. There lay the dragon, hacked and hewn to pieces on the ground, and not far from it were the king's daughter and a hunter with his animals, and all of them were sunk in a sound sleep. And as he was wicked and godless, he took his sword, cut off the hunter's head, and seized the maiden in his arms, and carried her down the hill. Then she awoke and was terrified, but the marshal said, You are in my hands. You shall say that it was I who killed the dragon. I cannot do that, she replied, for it was a hunter with his animals who did it. Then he drew his sword and threatened to kill her if she did not obey him, and so compelled her that she promised it. Then he took her to the king, who did not know how to contain himself for joy when he once more saw his dear child alive, whom he had believed to have been torn to pieces by the monster. The marshal said to him, I have killed the dragon, and delivered the maiden and the whole kingdom as well. Therefore I demand her as my wife, as was promised. The king said to the maiden, Is what he says true? Ah, yes, she answered, it must indeed be true, but I will not consent to have the wedding celebrated until after a year and a day, for she fought in that time she should hear something of her dear hunter. The animals, however, were still lying sleeping beside their dead master on the dragon's hill, and there came a great bumblebee that alighted on the hare's nose, but the hare wiped it off with his paw and went on sleeping. The bumblebee came a second time, but the hare again rubbed it off and slept on. Then it came for the third time, and stung his nose, so that he awoke. As soon as the hare was awake, he roused the fox, and the fox the wolf, and the wolf the bear, and the bear the lion. And when the lion awoke, and saw that the maiden was gone, and his master was dead, he began to roar frightfully, and cried, Who has done that? Bear, why did you not wake me? The bear asked the wolf, why did you not wake me? And the wolf the fox, why did you not wake me? And the fox the hare, why did you not wake me? The poor hare alone did not know what answer to make. 
and the blame rested with him. Then they were just going to fall upon him, but he entreated them and said, Don't kill me. I will bring our master to life again. I know a mountain on which a root grows, which, when placed in the mouth of anyone, cures him of all illness and every wound. But the mountain lies two hundred miles from here. The lion said, You have twenty-four hours to run there and come back and bring the root with you. Then the hare sprang away, and in twenty-four hours he was back, and brought the root with him. The lion put the hunter's head on again, and the hare placed the root in his mouth, and immediately everything united together again, and his heart beat, and life came back. Then the hunter awoke, and was alarmed when he did not see the maiden, and thought, She must have gone away while I was sleeping, in order to get rid of me. The lion, in his great haste, put his master's head on the wrong way round, but the hunter did not observe it because of his melancholy thoughts about the king's daughter. But at noon, when he was going to eat something, he saw that his head was turned backwards and could not understand it, and asked the animals what had happened to him in his sleep. Then the lion told him that they too had all fallen asleep from weariness, and on awaking had found him dead with his head cut off, that the hare had brought the life-giving root, and that he, in his haste, had laid the head the wrong way, but that he would repair his mistake. Then he tore the hunter's head off again, turned it round, and the hare healed it with the root. The hunter, however, was sad at heart, and travelled about the world, and made his animals dance before people. It came to pass that precisely at the end of one year he came back to the same town, where he had delivered the king's daughter from the dragon, and this time the town was gaily hung with red cloth. Then he said to the host, What does this mean? Last year the town was all hung with black crepe. What means the red cloth today? The host answered, Last year our king's daughter was to have been delivered over to the dragon, but the marshal fought with it and killed it, and so tomorrow their wedding is to be solemnised. And that is why the town was then hung with black crepe for mourning and is today covered with red cloth for joy. Next day, when the wedding was to take place, the hunter said at midday to the innkeeper, Do you believe, sir host, that while with you here today I shall eat bread from the king's own table? Nay, said the host, I would bet a hundred pieces of gold that that will not come true. The hunter accepted the wager, and set against it a purse with just the same number of gold pieces. Then he called the hare and said, Go, my dear runner, and fetch me some of the bread which the king is eating. Now the little hare was the lowest of the animals, and could not transfer this order to any of the others, but had to go on foot himself. Alas, thought he, if I bound through the streets thus alone, the butcher's dogs will all be after me. It happened as he expected, 
and the dogs came after him and wanted to make holes in his good skin, but he sprang away. Have you never seen one running and sheltered himself in a sentry box without the soldier being aware of it? Then the dogs came and wanted to have him out, but the soldier did not let them pass, and struck them with the butt end of his gun, till they ran away yelling and howling. As soon as the hare saw that the way was clear, he ran into the palace and straight into the king's daughter, sat down under her chair, and scratched at her foot. Then she said, Will you go away? And thought it was her dog. The hare scratched her foot for the second time, and she again said, Will you get away? And thought it was her dog, but the hare did not let itself be turned from its purpose and scratched her for the third time. Then she peeped down and knew the hare by her necklace. She took him on her lap, carried him into the chamber, and said, Dear hare, what do you want? He answered, My master, who killed the dragon, is here and has sent me to ask for a loaf of bread like that which the king eats. Then she was full of joy and had the baker summoned and ordered him to bring a loaf such as that eaten by the king. The little hare said, But the baker must likewise carry it there for me, that the butcher's dogs may do no harm to me. The baker carried if for him, as far as the door of the inn, and then the hare got on his hind legs, took the loaf in his front paws, and carried it to his master. Then said the hunter, See, sir host, the hundred pieces of gold are mine. The host was astonished, but the hunter went on to say, Yes, sir host, I have the bread, but now I will likewise have some of the king's roast meat. The host said, I should indeed like to see that, but he would make no more wages. The hunter called the fox and said, My little fox, go and fetch me some roast meat, such as the king eats. The red fox knew the byways better and went by holes and corners without any dog seeing him, seated himself under the chair of the king's daughter and scratched her foot. Then she looked down and recognised the fox by its necklace, took him into her chamber with her and said, Dear fox, what do you want? He answered, My master who killed the dragon is here and has sent me. I am to ask for some roast meat such as the king is eating. Then she made the cook come who was obliged to prepare a roast the same as was eaten by the king and to carry it for the fox as far as the door. Then the fox took the dish and with his tail waved away the flies which had settled on the meat and then carried it to his master. Look, sir host, said the hunter, bread and meat are here, but now... I will also have proper vegetables with it, such as those eaten by the king. Then he called the wolf and said, Dear wolf, go there and fetch me some vegetables, such as the king eats. Then the wolf went straight to the palace, as he feared no one, and when he got to the king's daughter's chamber, he twitched at the back of her dress, so that she was forced to look round. She recognised him by his necklace, 
and took him into her chamber with her and said, Dear wolf, what do you want? He answered, My master who killed the dragon is here. I am to ask for some vegetables, such as the king eats. Then she made the cook come, and he had to make ready a dish of vegetables, such as the king ate, and had to carry it for the wolf as far as the door. And then the wolf took the dish from him and carried it to his master. See, sir host, said the hunter, now I have bread and meat and vegetables, but I will also have some pastry to eat like that which the king eats. He called the bear and said, Dear bear, you are fond of licking anything sweet. Go and bring me some confectionery, such as the king eats. Then the bear trotted to the palace, and everyone got out of his way. But when he went to the guard, they presented their muskets and would not let him go into the royal palace. But he got up on his hind legs and gave them a few boxes on the ears, right and left, with his paws, so that the whole watch broke up. And then he went straight to the king's daughter, placed himself behind her, and growled a little. Then she looked behind her, knew the bear, and bade him go into her room with her and said, Dear bear, what do you want? He answered, My master who killed the dragon is here, and I am to ask for some confectionery, such as the king eats. Then she summoned her confectioner, who had to bake confectionery, such as the king ate, and carry it to the door for the bear. Then the bear first licked up the sugar drips, which had rolled down, and then he stood upright, took the dish, and carried it to his master. Behold, sir host, said the hunter, now I have bread, meat, vegetables, and confectionery, but I will drink wine also, and such as the king drinks. He called his lion to him and said, Dear lion, you yourself like to drink till you are intoxicated. Go and fetch me some wine, such as that which is drunk by the king. Then the lion strode through the streets, and the people fled from him, and when he came to the watch, they wanted to bar the way against him. But he did but roar once, and they all ran away. Then the lion went to the royal apartment, and knocked at the door with his tail. Then the king's daughter came forth, and was almost afraid of the lion, but she knew him by the golden clasp of her necklace, and bade him go with her into her chamber, and said, Dear lion, what will you have? He answered, My master who killed the dragon is here, and I am to ask for some wine, such as the king drinks. Then she bade the cupbearer be called who was to give the lion some wine like that which was drunk by the king. The lion said, I will go with him and see that I get the right wine. Then he went down with the cupbearer, and when they were there below, the cupbearer wanted to draw him some of the common wine that was drunk by the king's servants. But the lion said, Stop, I will taste the wine first. And he drew half a measure, and swallowed it down at one gulp. No, said he, that is not right. 
The cupbearer glared at him, but went on, and was about to give him some out of another barrel, which was for the king's marshal. The lion said, Stop, let me taste the wine first, and drew half a measure and drank it. That is better, but still not right, said he. Then the cupbearer grew angry and said, How can a stupid animal like you understand wine? But the lion gave him a blow behind the ears, which made him fall down by no means gently, and when he had got up again he conducted the lion quite silently into a separate little cellar where the king's wine lay, from which no one ever drank. The lion first drew half a measure and tried the wine, and then he said, That may possibly be the right sort, and bade the cupbearer fill six bottles of it. And now they went upstairs again, and when the lion came out of the cellar into the open air, he reeled here and there and was rather drunk, and the cupbearer was forced to carry the wine as far as the door for him. And then the lion took the handle of the basket in his mouth and took it to his master. The hunter said, Look, sir host, here have I bread, meat, vegetables, confectionery and wine, such as the king has, and now I will dine with my animals. And he sat down and ate and drank, and allowed the hare, the fox, the wolf, the bear and the lion also to eat and to drink, and was joyful, for he saw that the king's daughter still loved him. And when he had finished his dinner, he said, Sir host, now have I eaten and drunk as the king eats and drinks, and now I will go to the king's court and marry the king's daughter. Said the host, How can that be when she already has a betrothed husband and when the wedding is to be solemnized today? Then the hunter drew forth the handkerchief which the king's daughter had given him on the dragon's hill and in which were folded the monster's seven tongues and said, That which I hold in my hand shall help me to do it. Then the innkeeper looked at the handkerchief and said, Whatever I believe, I do not believe that, and I am willing to stake my house and courtyard on it. The hunter, however, took a bag with a thousand gold pieces, put it on the table and said, I stake that on it. Now the king said to his daughter at the royal table, what did all the wild animals want, which have been coming to you and going in and out of my palace? She replied, I may not tell you, but send and have the master of these animals brought, and you will know. The king sent a servant to the inn, and invited the stranger, and the servant came just as the hunter had laid his wager with the innkeeper. Then said he, now, sir host, the king sends his servants and invites me, but I do not go in this way. And he said to the servant, I request the Lord King to send me royal clothing and a carriage with six horses and servants to attend me. When the king heard the answer, he said to his daughter, What shall I do? 
she said, Have him fetched as he desires to be, and you will do well. Then the king sent royal apparel, a carriage with six horses and servants to wait on him. When the hunter saw them coming, he said, See, sir host, now I am fetched as I desired to be. And he put on the royal garments, took the handkerchief with the dragon's tongues with him, and drove off to the king. When the king saw him coming, he said to his daughter, How shall I receive him? She answered, Go to meet him, and you will do well. Then the king went to meet him, and led him in, and his animals followed. The king gave him a seat near himself, and his daughter and the marshal as bridegroom sat on the other side, but no longer knew the hunter. And now, at this very moment, the seven heads of the dragon were brought in as a spectacle. And the king said, The seven heads were cut off the dragon by the marshal. Therefore today I gave him my daughter as wife. The hunter stood up, opened the seven mouths and said, Where are the seven tongues of the dragon? Then the marshal was terrified and grew pale and knew not what to answer, and at length in his anguish he said, Dragons have no tongues. The hunter said, Liars ought to have none, but the dragon's tongues are the tokens of the victor. And he unfolded the handkerchief, and there lay all seven inside it, and he put each tongue in the mouth to which it belonged, and it fitted exactly. Then he took the handkerchief on which the name of the princess was embroidered and showed it to the maiden and asked her whom she had given it and she replied to the man who killed the dragon. And then he called his animals and took the collar off each of them and the golden clasp from the lion and showed them to the maiden and asked to whom they belonged. She answered, The necklace and golden clasp were mine but I divided them among the animals who helped to conquer the dragon. Then the hunter said, When I, tired with the fight, was resting and sleeping, the marshal came and cut off my head. Then he carried away the king's daughter and pretended that it was he who had killed the dragon. But with the tongues, the handkerchief and the necklace, I proved that he lied. And then he related how his animals had healed him by means of a wonderful root and how he had travelled about with them for one year and had at length again come there and had learnt the treachery of the marshal by the innkeeper's story. Then the king asked his daughter, Is it true that this man killed the dragon? And she answered, Yes, it is true. Now I can reveal the wicked deed of the marshal, as it has come to light, for he wrung from me a promise to be silent. For this reason, however, I made the condition that the marriage should not be solemnized for a year and a day. Then the king bade twelve counsellors be summoned, who were to pronounce judgment on the marshal, and they sentenced him to be torn to pieces by four bulls. The marshal was therefore executed, but the king gave his daughter to the hunter and named him viceroy over the whole kingdom. 
The wedding was celebrated with great joy, and the young king sent for his father and his foster father and loaded them with treasures. He sent for the innkeeper too and said, Now, sir host, I have married the king's daughter, and your house and yard are mine. The host said, Yes, according to justice it is so. But the young king said, It shall be done according to mercy, and told him that he should keep his house and yard, and gave him the thousand pieces of gold as well. Now the young king and queen were thoroughly happy and lived in gladness together. He often went out hunting because it was a delight to him, and the faithful animals had to accompany him. In the neighbourhood, however, there was a forest of which it was reported that it was haunted, and that whoever entered it did not easily get out again. The young king, however, had a great inclination to hunt in it, and let the old king have no peace until he allowed him to do so. So he rode forth with a great following, and when he came to the forest he saw a snow-white deer, and said to his people, Wait here until I return. I want to chase that beautiful creature. And he rode into the forest after it, followed only by his animals. The attendants halted and waited until evening, but he did not return, so they rode home and told the young queen that the young king had followed a white deer into the enchanted forest and had not come back again. Then she had the greatest concern about him. He, however, had still continued to ride on and on after the beautiful wild animal and had never been able to overtake it. When he thought he was near enough to aim, he instantly saw it bound away into the far distance, and at length it vanished altogether. And now he perceived that he had penetrated deep into the forest and blew his horn, but he received no answer, for his attendants could not hear it. And as night too was falling, he saw that he could not get home that day, so he dismounted from his horse, lighted himself a fire near a tree, and resolved to spend the night by it. While he was sitting by the fire, and his animals were lying down beside him, it seemed to him that he heard a human voice. He looked round, but could perceive nothing. Soon afterwards he again heard a groan, as if from above, and then he looked up and saw an old woman sitting in a tree, who wailed unceasingly, Oh, 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 how cold I am, said he. Come down and warm yourself, if you are cold. But she said, No, your animals will bite me. He answered, They will do you no harm, old mother. Do come down. She, however, was a witch, and said, I will throw down a wand from the tree, and if you strike them on the back with it, they will do me no harm. Then she threw him a small wand, and he struck them with it, and instantly they lay still, and were turned into stone. And when the witch was safe from the animals, she leapt down and touched him also with a wand, and changed him to stone. 
Thereupon she laughed and dragged him and the animals into a vault where many more such stones already lay. As, however, the young king did not come back at all, the queen's anguish and care grew constantly greater, and it so happened that at this very time the other brother, who had turned to the east when they separated, came into the kingdom. He had sought a home and had found none, and had then travelled about here and there, and had made his animals dance. Then it came into his mind that he would just go and look at the knife that they had thrust in the trunk of a tree at their parting, that he might learn how his brother was. When he got there, his brother's side of the knife was half rusted and half bright. Then he was alarmed and thought, A great misfortune must have befallen my brother, but perhaps I can still save him, for half the knife is still bright. He and his animals travelled towards the west, and when he entered the gate of the town, the guard came to meet him, and asked if he was to announce him to his consort, the young queen, who had for a couple of days been in the greatest sorrow about his staying away, and was afraid he had been killed in the enchanted forest. The sentries, indeed, thought no otherwise than that he was the young king himself, for he looked so like him, and had wild animals running behind him. Then he saw that they were speaking of his brother, and thought, It will be better if I pass myself off as him, and then I can rescue him more easily. So he allowed himself to be escorted into the castle by the guard, and was received with the greatest joy. The young queen indeed thought that he was her husband, and asked him why he had stayed away so long. He answered, I had lost myself in the forest, and could not find my way out again any sooner. At night he was taken to the royal bed, but he laid a two-edged sword between him and the young queen. She did not know what that could mean, but did not venture to ask. He remained in the palace a couple of days, and in the meantime inquired into everything that related to the enchanted forest, and at last he said, I must hunt there once more. The king and the young queen wanted to persuade him not to do it, but he held out against them and went forth with a large following. When he had got into the forest, everything happened with him, as with his brother. He saw a white deer, and said to his people, Stay there, and wait until I return. I want to chase the lovely wild beast. And then he rode into the forest, and his animals ran after him. But he could not overtake the deer, and got so deep into the forest that he was forced to pass the night there. And when he had lighted a fire, he heard someone wailing above him, Oh, 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 how cold I am. Then he looked up, and the same witch was sitting in the tree. Said he, If you are cold, come down, little old mother, and warm yourself. She answered, No, your animals will bite me. But he said, 
They will not hurt you. Then she cried, I will throw down a wand to you, and if you strike them with it, they will do me no harm. When the hunter heard that, he had no confidence in the old woman and said, I will not strike my animals. Come down or I will fetch you. Then she cried, What do you want? You shall not touch me. But he replied, If you do not come, I will shoot you. She said, Shoot away. I do not fear your bullets. Then he aimed and fired at her, but the witch was proof against all leaden bullets and laughed and yelled and cried, You shall not hit me. The hunter knew what to do, tore three silver buttons off his coat and loaded his gun with them, for against them her arts were useless. And when he fired, she fell down at once with a scream. Then he set his foot on her and said, Old witch, if you do not instantly confess where my brother is, I will seize you with both my hands and throw you into the fire. She was in a great fright, begged for mercy and said, He and his animals lie in a vault, turned to stone. Then he compelled her to go there with him, threatened her, and said, Old witch, now you shall make my brother and all the human beings lying here alive again, or you shall go into the fire. She took a wand and touched the stones, and then his brother with his animals came to life again. And many others, merchants, artisans and shepherds arose, thanked him for their deliverance and went to their homes. But when the twin brothers saw each other again, they kissed each other and rejoiced with all their hearts. Then they seized the witch, bound her and laid her on the fire. And when she was burnt, the forest opened of its own accord and was light and clear and the king's palace could be seen at about the distance of a three hours' walk. After this, the two brothers went home together, and on the way told each other their histories. And when the youngest said that he was ruler of the whole country in the king's stead, the other observed, That I learned very well, for when I came to the town and was taken for you, All royal honours were paid me. The young queen looked at me as her husband, and I had to eat at her side and sleep in your bed. When the other heard that, he became so jealous and angry that he drew his sword and struck off his brother's head. But when he saw him lying there dead and saw his red blood flowing, he repented most violently. My brother saved me, cried he, and I have killed him for it. And he bewailed him aloud. Then his hair came and offered to go and bring some of the root of life, and bound it away and brought it while there was still time, and the dead man was brought to life again, and knew nothing about the wound. After this they journeyed onwards, 
And the youngest said, You look like me. Have royal apparel on as I have. And the animals follow you as they do me. We will go in by opposite gates and arrive at the same time from the two sides in the aged king's presence. So they separated, and at the same time came the watchman from the one door and from the other and announced that the young king and the animals had returned from the chase. The king said, It is not possible. The gates lie quite a mile apart. In the meantime, however, the two brothers entered the courtyard of the palace from opposite sides and both mounted the steps. Then the king said to the daughter, Say, which is your husband? Each of them looks exactly like the other. I cannot tell. Then she was in great distress and could not tell, but at last she remembered the necklace which she had given to the animals, and she sought for and found her little golden clasp on the lion, and she cried in her delight, He who is followed by this lion is my true husband. Then the young king laughed and said, Yes, he is the right one, and they sat down together and ate and drank and were merry. At night, when the young king went to bed, his wife said, Why have you for these last nights always laid a two-edged sword in our bed? I thought you had a wish to kill me. Then he knew how true his brother had been. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 61. The Little Peasant. There was a certain village where no one lived but really rich peasants, and just one poor one, whom they called the Little Peasant. He had not even so much as a cow and still less money to buy one, and yet he and his wife did so wish to have one. One day he said to her, Say, I have a good thought. There is our friend the carpenter. He shall make us a wooden calf, and paint it brown, so that it looks like any other, and in time it will certainly get big and be a cow. The woman also liked the idea, and their friend the carpenter cut and planed the calf, and painted it as it ought to be and made it with its head hanging down as if it were eating. Next morning when the cows were being driven out, the little peasant called the cow herd and said, Look, I have a little calf there, but it is still small and has to still be carried. The cow herd said, All right, and took it in his arms and carried it to the pasture and set it among the grass. The little calf always remained standing and seemed to be eating all the time. And the cow herd said, It will soon be able to run alone. Just look how it eats already. At night, when he was going to drive the herd home again, he said to the calf, If you can stand there and eat your fill, you can also go on your four legs. I don't care to drag you home again in my arms. 
But the little peasant stood at his door and waited for his little calf, and when the cowherd drove the cows through the village and the calf was missing, he inquired where it was. The cowherd answered, It is still standing out there eating. It would not stop and come with us. But the little peasant said, Oh, but I must have my beast back again. Then they went back to the meadow together, but someone had stolen the calf and it was gone. The cowherd said, It must have run away. The peasant, however, said, Don't tell me that, and brought the cowherd before the mare, who for his carelessness condemned him to give the peasant a cow for the calf which had run away. And now the little peasant and his wife had the cow for which they had so long wished, and they were heartily glad, but they had no food for it, and could give it nothing to eat, so it soon had to be killed. They salted the flesh, and the peasant went into the town and wanted to sell the skin there, so that he might buy a new calf with the proceeds. On the way he passed by a mill, and there sat a raven with broken wings, and out of pity he took him and wrapped him in the skin. As, however, the weather grew so bad, and there was a storm of rain and wind, he could go no farther, and turned back to the mill and begged for shelter. The miller's wife was alone in the house and said to the peasant, Lay yourself on the straw there, and gave him a slice of bread with cheese on it. The peasant ate it, and lay down with his skin beside him, and the woman thought, He is tired, and has gone to sleep. In the meantime came the parson, the miller's wife received him well and said, My husband is out, so we will have a feast. The peasant listened, and when he heard about feasting, he was vexed that he had been forced to make do with a slice of bread with cheese on it. Then the woman served up four different things, roast meat, salad, cakes, and wine. Just as they were about to sit down and eat, there was a knocking outside. The woman said, Oh, heavens, it is my husband. She quickly hid the roast meat inside the tiled stove, the wine under the pillow, the salad on the bed, the cakes under it, and the parson in the cupboard in the entrance. Then she opened the door for her husband and said, Thank heaven, you are back again. There is such a storm it looks as if the world were coming to an end. The miller saw the peasant lying on the straw and asked, What is that fellow doing there? Ah, said the wife, the poor knave came in the storm and rain and begged for shelter, so I gave him a bit of bread and cheese and showed him where the straw was. The man said, I have no objection, but be quick and get me something to eat. The woman said, But I have nothing but bread and cheese. I am contented with anything, replied the husband. So far as I am concerned, bread and cheese will do. And looked at the peasant and said, Come and eat some more with me. The peasant did not require to be invited twice, but got up and ate. After this, the miller saw the skin in which the raven was wrapped, lying on the ground, and asked, 
What have you there? The peasant answered, I have a soothsayer inside it. Can he foretell anything to me? said the miller. Why not? answered the peasant. But he only says four things, and the fifth he keeps to himself. The miller was curious and said, Let him foretell something for once. Then the peasant pinched the raven's head so that he croaked and made a sound like krr, krr. The miller said, What did he say? The peasant answered, In the first place, he says that there is some wine hidden under the pillow. Bless me, cried the miller, and went there and found the wine. Now go on, said he. The peasant made the raven croak again and said, In the second place, he says that there is some roast meat in the tiled stove. Upon my word, cried the miller, and went there and found the roast meat. The peasant made the raven prophesy still more and said, Thirdly, he says that there is some salad on the bed. That would be a fine thing, cried the miller, and went there and found the salad. At last the peasant pinched the raven once more till he croaked and said, Fourthly, he says that there are some cakes under the bed. That would be a fine thing, cried the miller, and looked there and found the cakes. And now the two sat down to the table together, but the miller's wife was frightened to death and went to bed and took all the keys with her. The miller would have much liked to know the fifth, but the little peasant said, First we will quickly eat the four things, for the fifth is something bad. So they ate, and after that they bargained how much the miller was to give for the fifth prophecy, until they agreed on three hundred talkers. Then the peasant once more pinched the raven's head till he croaked loudly. The miller asked, What did he say? The peasant replied, He says that the devil is hiding there in the cupboard in the entrance. The miller said, The devil must go out and open the door. Then the woman was forced to give up the keys and the peasant unlocked the cupboard. The parson ran out as fast as he could, and the miller said, It was true, I saw the black rascal with my own eyes. The peasant made off next morning by daybreak with the three hundred talkers. At home the small peasant gradually launched out. He built a beautiful house, and the peasant said, The small peasant has certainly been to the place where golden snow falls, and people carry the gold home in shovels. Then the small peasant was brought before the mayor and bidden to say from where his wealth came. He answered, I sold my cow's skin in the town for three hundred talkers. When the peasants heard that, they too wished to enjoy this great profit, and ran home, killed all their cows and stripped off their skins in order to sell them in the town to their greatest advantage. The mare, however, said, But my servant must go first. When she came to the merchant in the town, he did not give her more than two talkers for a skin, and when the others came, he did not give them so much, and said, What can I do with all these skins? 
Then the peasants were vexed that the small peasant should have thus deceived them, wanted to take vengeance on him, and accused him of this treachery before the mayor. The innocent little peasant was unanimously sentenced to death, and was to be rolled into the water in a barrel pierced full of holes. He was led forth, and a priest was brought who was to say a mass for his soul. The others were all obliged to retire to a distance, and when the peasant looked at the priest, he recognised the man who had been with the miller's wife. He said to him, I set you free from the cupboard, set me free from the barrel. At this same moment up came, with a flock of sheep, the very shepherd, who the peasant knew had long been wishing to be mare. So he cried with all his might, No, I will not do it. If the whole world insists on it, I will not do it. The shepherd, hearing that, came up to him and asked, What are you about? What is it that you will not do? The peasant said, They want to make me mare, if I will but put myself in the barrel, but I will not do it. The shepherd said, If nothing more than that is needed in order to be mare, I would get into the barrel at once. The peasant said, If you will get in, you will be mare. The shepherd was willing and got in, and the peasant shut the top door on him. Then he took the shepherd's flock for himself and drove it away. The parson went to the crowd and declared that the mass had been said. Then they came and rolled the barrel towards the water. When the barrel began to roll, the shepherd cried, I am quite willing to be mare. They believed that it was the peasant who was saying this, and answered, That is what we intend, but first you shall go down below and look about you a little. And they rolled the barrel down into the water. After that the peasants went home, and as they were entering the village... The small peasant came also quietly in, driving a flock of sheep and looking quite contented. Then the peasants were astonished and said, Peasant, from where do you come? Have you come out of the water? Yes, truly, replied the peasant. I sank deep, deep down until at last I got to the bottom. I pushed the bottom out of the barrel and crept out, and there were pretty meadows on which a number of lambs were feeding. And from there I brought this flock away with me, said the peasants. Are there any more there? Oh yes, said he, more than I could do anything with. Then the peasants made up their minds that they too would fetch some sheep for themselves, a flock apiece, but the mare said, I come first. So they went to the water together, and just then there were some of the small fleecy clouds in the blue sky, which are called little lambs, and they were reflected in the water. And the peasants cried, We already see the sheep down below. The mare pressed forward and said, I will go down first and look about me, and if things look promising, I'll call you. So he jumped in, splash, went the water. He made a sound as if he were calling them, and the whole crowd plunged in after him. Then the entire village was dead, and the small peasant, 
as Saul here became a rich man. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 62, The Queen Bee. Two king's sons once went out in search of adventures and fell into a wild, disorderly way of living so that they never came home again. The youngest, who was called Simpleton, sent out to seek his brothers, but when at length he found them, they mocked him for thinking that he could get through the world with his simplicity, when they both could not make their way, and yet were so cleverer. They all three travelled away together, and came to an anthill. The two elders wanted to destroy it, to see the little ants creeping about in their terror, and carrying their eggs away. But Simpleton said, Leave the creatures in peace. I will not allow you to disturb them. Then they went onwards and came to a lake in which a great number of ducks were swimming. The two brothers wanted to catch a couple and roast them, but Simpleton would not permit it and said, Leave the creatures in peace. I will not allow you to kill them. At length they came to a bee's nest, in which there was so much honey that it ran out of the trunk of the tree where it was. The two wanted to make a fire beneath the tree and suffocate the bees in order to take away the honey. But Simpleton again stopped them and said, Leave the creatures in peace. I will not allow you to burn them. At length the three brothers arrived at a castle where stone horses were standing in the stables and no human being was to be seen. And they went through all the hills until quite at the end they came to a door in which were three locks. In the middle of the door, however, there was a little pane through which they could see into the room. There they saw a little grey man who was sitting at a table. They called him once, twice, but he did not hear. At last they called him for the third time. When he got up, opened the locks, and came out, he said nothing, however, but conducted them to a handsomely spread table. And when they had eaten and drunk, he took each of them to a bedroom. Next morning the little grey man came to the eldest, beckoned to him, and conducted him to a stone table on which were inscribed three tasks that, when performed, could deliver the castle from enchantment. The first was that in the forest, beneath the moss, lay the princess's pearls, a thousand in number, which must be picked up, and if by sunset one single pearl was wanting, he who had looked for them would be turned into stone. The eldest went there and sought the whole day, but when it came to an end, he had only found one hundred, and what was written on the table came to pass, and he was changed into stone. Next day, the second brother undertook the adventure. It did not, however, fare much better with him than with the eldest. He did not find more than two hundred pearls and was changed to stone. At last the turn came to Simpleton also, who sought in the moss. 
It was, however, so hard to find the pearls, and he got on so slowly that he seated himself on a stone and wept. And while he was thus sitting, the king of the ants whose life he had once saved came with five thousand ants, and before long the little creatures had got all the pearls together and laid them in a heap. The second task, however, was to fetch out of the lake the key of the king's daughter's bedchamber. When Simpleton came to the lake, the ducks which he had saved swam up to him, dived down, and brought the key out of the water. But the third task was the most difficult. From amongst the three sleeping daughters of the king, he was to choose the youngest and dearest. They, however, resembled each other exactly, and were only to be distinguished by their having eaten different sweetmeats before they fell asleep. The eldest, a bit of sugar, the second, a little syrup, and the youngest, a spoonful of honey. Then the queen of the bees, which Simpleton had protected from the fire, came and tasted the lips of all three, and at last she remained sitting on the mouth which had eaten honey, and thus the king's son recognised the right princess. Then the enchantment was at an end. Everything was released from sleep, and those who had been turned to stone received once more their natural forms. Simpleton married the youngest and sweetest princess, and after her father's death became king, and his two brothers received the two other sisters. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 63, The Free Feathers. There was once upon a time a king who had three sons, of whom two were clever and wise, but the third did not speak much, and was simple, and was called the simpleton. When the king had become old and weak, and was thinking of his end, he did not know which of his sons should inherit the kingdom after him. Then he said to them, Go forth, and he who brings me the most beautiful carpet shall be king after my death. And that there should be no dispute amongst them, he took them outside his castle, blew three feathers in the air, and said, You shall go as they fly. One feather flew to the east, the other to the west, but the third flew straight up and did not fly far, but soon fell to the ground. And now one brother went to the right, and the other to the left, and they mocked Simpleton, who was forced to stay where the third feather had fallen. He sat down and was sad. Then all at once he saw that there was a trapdoor close by the feather. He raised it up, found some steps, and went down them, and then he came to another door, knocked at it, and heard somebody inside calling. Little green maiden small, hopping here and there, hopped to the door and quickly see who is there. The door opened, and he saw a great fat toad, sitting, and round about her a crowd of little toads. The fat toad asked what he wanted. He answered, I should like to have the prettiest and finest carpet in the world. 
Then she called a young one and said, Little green maiden small, hopping here and there, hop quickly and bring me the great box here. The young toad brought the box and the fat toad opened it and gave Simpleton a carpet out of it, so beautiful and so fine that on the earth above none could have been woven like it. Then he thanked her and ascended again. The two others had, however, looked on their youngest brother as so stupid that they believed he would find and bring nothing at all. Why should we give ourselves a great deal of trouble to search, said they, and got some coarse handkerchiefs from the first shepherd's wives whom they met and carried them home to the king. At the same time, Simpleton also came back and brought his beautiful carpet, and when the king saw it, he was astonished and said, If justice be done, the kingdom belongs to the youngest. But the two others let their father have no peace, and said it was impossible that Simpleton, who lacked understanding in everything, should be king and entreated him to make a new agreement with them. Then the father said, He who brings me the most beautiful ring shall inherit the kingdom, and led the three brothers out, and blew into the air three feathers, which they were to follow. Those of the two eldest again went east and west, and Simpleton's feather flew straight up and fell down near the door into the earth. Then he went down again to the fat toad and told her that he wanted the most beautiful ring. She at once ordered her great box to be brought and gave him a ring out of it, which sparkled with jewels and was so beautiful that no goldsmith on earth would have been able to make it. The two elders laughed at Simpleton for going to seek a golden ring they gave themselves no trouble, but knocked the nails out of an old ring from the harness of a carriage horse, and took it to the king. But when Simpleton produced his golden ring, his father again said, The kingdom belongs to him. The two eldest did not cease from tormenting the king until he made a third condition and declared that the one who brought the most beautiful woman home should have the kingdom. He again blew the free feathers into the air and they flew as before. Then Simpleton, without more ado, went down to the fat toad and said, I am to take home the most beautiful woman. Oh, answered the toad, the most beautiful woman, she is not at hand at the moment, but still you shall have her. She gave him a yellow turnip, which had been hollowed out, to which six mice were harnessed. Then Simpleton said quite mournfully, What am I to do with that? The toad answered, Just put one of my little toads into it. Then he seized one at random, out of the circle, and put her into the yellow coach, but hardly was she seated inside it, than she turned into a wonderfully beautiful maiden, and the turnip into a coach, and the six mice into horses. 
So he kissed her, and drove off quickly with the horses, and took her to the king. His brothers came afterwards. They had given themselves no trouble at all to seek beautiful girls, but had brought with them the first peasant women they chanced to meet. When the king saw them, he said, After my death, the kingdom belongs to my youngest son. But the two eldest deafened the king's ears with their clamour. We cannot consent to simpletons being king, and demanded that the one whose wife could leap through a ring which hung in the centre of the hall should have the kingdom. They thought the peasant women can do that easily, they are strong enough, but the delicate maiden will jump herself to death. The aged king agreed to this. Then the two peasant women jumped, and jumped through the ring, but were so stout that they fell, and their coarse arms and legs broke in two. And then the pretty maiden, whom Simpleton had brought with him, sprang and sprang through as lightly as a deer, and all opposition had to cease. So he received the crown, and has ruled wisely for a length of time." Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 64, The Golden Goose. There was a man who had three sons, the youngest of whom was called Dumbling, and was despised, mocked, and put down on every occasion. It happened that the eldest wanted to go into the forest to hew wood, and before he went his mother gave him a beautiful sweet cake and a bottle of wine, so that he might not suffer from hunger or thirst. When he entered the forest, he met a little grey-haired old man, who bade him good day, and said, Do give me a piece of cake out of your pocket, and let me have a drink of your wine, I am so hungry and thirsty. But the prudent youth answered, If I give you my cake and wine, I shall have none for myself. Be off with you. And he left the little man standing, and went on. But when he began to hew down a tree, it was not long before he made a false stroke, and the axe cut him in the arm, so that he had to go home and have it bound up. And this was the little grey man's doing. After this, the second son went into the forest, and his mother gave him, like the eldest, a cake and a bottle of wine. The little old grey man met him likewise, and asked him for a piece of cake and a drink of wine. But the second son too said, with much reason, What I give you will be taken away from myself. Be off! And he left the little man standing, and went on. His punishment, however, was not delayed. When he had made a few strokes at the tree, he struck himself in the leg, so that he had to be carried home. Then Dumbling said, Father, do let me go and cut wood. The father answered, Your brothers have hurt themselves by it. Leave it alone. You do not understand anything about it. But Dumbling begged so long that at last he said, 
Just go then. You will get wiser by hurting yourself. His mother gave him a cake made with water and baked in the cinders, and with it a bottle of sour beer. When he came to the forest, the little old grey man met him likewise, and greeting him said, Give me a piece of your cake and a drink out of your bottle. I am so hungry and thirsty. Dumbling answered, I have only cinder cake and sour beer. If that pleases you, we will sit down and eat. So they sat down, and when Dumbling pulled out his cinder cake, it was a fine sweet cake, and the sour beer had become good wine. So they ate and drank, and after that the little man said, Since you have a good heart, and are willing to divide what you have, I will give you good luck. There stands an old tree. Cut it down, and you will find something at the roots. Then the little man took leave of him. Dumbling went and cut down the tree, and when it fell, there was a goose sitting in the roots with feathers of pure gold. He lifted her up, and taking her with him, went to an inn, where he thought he would stay the night. Now the host had three daughters, who saw the goose, and were curious to know what wonderful kind of bird it might be, and would have liked to have one of its golden feathers. The eldest thought, I shall soon find an opportunity of pulling out a feather. And as soon as Dumbling had gone out, she seized the goose by the wing, but her finger and hand remained sticking fast to it. The second came soon afterwards, thinking only of how she might get a feather for herself. But she had scarcely touched her sister than she was held fast. At last the third also came, with the same intent, and the others screamed out, Keep away, for goodness sakes! Keep away! But she did not understand why she was to keep away. The others are there, she thought. I may as well be there too, and ran to them. But as soon as she had touched her sister, she remained sticking fast to her. So they had to spend the night with the goose. The next morning, Dumbling took the goose under his arm and set out without troubling himself about the three girls who were hanging onto it. They were obliged to run after him continually, now left, now right, just as he was inclined to go. In the middle of the fields, the parson met them, and when he saw the procession, he said, "'For shame, you good-for-nothing girls! Why are you running across the fields after this young man? Is that seemly?' At the same time, he seized the youngest by the hand in order to pull her away, but as soon as he touched her, he likewise stuck fast, and was himself obliged to run behind. Before long, the sexton came by and saw his master, the parson, running behind three girls. He was astonished at this, and called out, Ho, your reverence, where do you go so quickly? Do not forget that we have a christening today. And running after him, he took him by the sleeve, but was also held fast to it.
While the five were trotting one behind the other, two labourers came with their hoes from the fields. The parson called out to them and begged that they would set him and the sexton free. But they had scarcely touched the sexton when they were held fast, and now there were seven of them running behind Dumling and the goose. Soon afterwards he came to a city where a king ruled who had a daughter who was so serious that no one could make her laugh. So he had put forth a decree that whoever should be able to make her laugh should marry her. When Dumling heard this, he went with his goose and all her train before the king's daughter, and as soon as she saw the seven people running on and on, one behind the other, she began to laugh quite loudly, and as if she would never leave off. Upon this, Dumling asked to have her for his wife, and the wedding was celebrated. After the king's death, Dumling inherited the kingdom and lived a long time contentedly with his wife. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 65, Thousand Furs. There was once upon a time a king who had a wife with golden hair, and she was so beautiful that her equal was not to be found on earth. It came to pass that she lay ill, and as she felt that she must soon die, she called the king and said, If you wish to marry again after my death, she must be as beautiful as I am, and have such golden hair as I have. This you must promise me. And after the king had promised her this, she closed her eyes and died. For a long time the king could not be comforted, and had no thought of taking another wife. At length his counsellors said, There is no helping it, the king must marry again, that we may have a queen. And now messengers were sent about far and wide to seek a bride who equalled the late queen in beauty. In the whole world, however, none was to be found, and even if one had been found, still there would have been no one who had such golden hair. So the messengers came home as they went. Now the king had a daughter who was just as beautiful as her dead mother and had the same golden hair. When she was grown up, the king looked at her one day and saw that in every respect she was like his late wife and suddenly felt a violent love for her. Then he said to his counsellors, I will marry my daughter, for she is the counterpart of my late wife, otherwise I can find no bride who resembles her. When the counsellors heard that, they were shocked and said, God has forbidden a father to marry his daughter, no good can come from such a crime, and the kingdom will be involved in the ruin. The daughter was still more shocked when she became aware of her father's resolution, but hoped to change his mind. Then she said to him, 
before I fulfil your wish, I must have three dresses, one as golden as the sun, one as silvery as the moon, and one as bright as the stars. Besides this, I wish for a mantle of a thousand different kinds of fur and hair joined together. And one of every kind of animal in your kingdom must give a piece of his skin for it. But she thought, to get that will be quite impossible, and thus I shall divert my father from his wicked intentions. The king, however, did not give it up, and the cleverest maidens in his kingdom had to weave the three dresses, one as golden as the sun. One as silvery as the moon, and one as bright as the stars, and his hunters had to catch one of every kind of animal in the whole of his kingdom, and take from it a piece of its skin, and out of these were made a mantle of a thousand different kinds of fur. At length, when all was ready, the king had the mantle brought, spread it out before her, and said, "The wedding." Shall be tomorrow. When the king's daughter saw that there was no longer any hope of turning her father's heart, she resolved to run away from him. In the night, while every one was asleep, she got up and took three different things from her treasures: a golden ring, a golden spinning wheel, and a golden reel. The three dresses of the sun, moon, and stars she put into a nutshell, put on her mantle of all kinds of fur, and blackened her face and hands with soot. Then she commended herself to God, and went away and walked the whole night until she reached a great forest. And as she was tired, she got into a hollow tree and fell asleep. The sun rose, and she slept on, and she was still sleeping when it was full day. Then it so happened that the king to whom this forest belonged was hunting in it. When his dogs came to the tree, they sniffed and ran barking round about it. The king said to the hunters, "Just see what kind of wild beast has hidden itself in there." The hunters obeyed his order. And when they came back, they said, "A wondrous beast is lying in the hollow tree. We have never seen before one like it. Its skin is fur of a thousand different kinds, but it is lying asleep." Said the king, "See if you can catch it alive, and then fasten it to the carriage, and we will take it with us." When the hunters laid hold of the maiden, she awoke, full of terror, and cried to them. I am a poor child, deserted by father and mother. Have pity on me and take me with you. Then said they, "Thousand furs, you will be useful in the kitchen. Come with us, and you can sweep up the ashes." So they put her in the carriage and took her home to the royal palace. There they pointed out to her a closet under the stairs where no daylight entered, and said. Hairy animal, there you can live and sleep. Then she was sent into the kitchen, and there she carried wood 
and water, swept the hearth, plucked the fowls, picked the vegetables, raked the ashes, and did all the dirty work. Fowls and furs lived there for a long time in great wretchedness. Alas, fair princess, what is to become of you now? It happened, however, that one day a feast was held in the palace, and she said to the cook, May I go upstairs for a while and look on? I will place myself outside the door. The cook answered, Yes, go, but you must be back here in half an hour to sweep the half. Then she took her oil lamp, went into her den, took off her fur dress and washed the soot off her face and hands so that her full beauty once more came to light and she opened the nut and took out her dress which shone like the sun and when she had done that she went up to the festival and everyone made way for her for no one knew her and thought no otherwise than that she was a king's daughter. The king came to meet her, gave his hand to her, and danced with her, and thought in his heart, My eyes have never yet seen anyone so beautiful. When the dance was over, she curtsied, and when the king looked round again, she had vanished, and no one knew where. The guards who stood outside the palace were called and questioned, but no one had seen her. She had, however, run into her little den, had quickly taken off her dress, made her face and hands black again, put on a fur mantle, and again was thousand furs. And now when she went into the kitchen and was about to get to her work and sweep up the ashes, the cook said, Leave that alone till morning, and make me the soup for the king. I too will go upstairs a while and take a look, but let no hairs fall in, or in future you shall have nothing to eat. So the cook went away, and Thousand Furs made the soup for the king, and made the bread soup the best she could, and when it was ready, she fetched her golden ring from her little den, and put it in the bowl in which the soup was served. When the dancing was over, the king had his soup brought and ate it, and he liked it so much that it seemed to him he had never tasted better. But when he came to the bottom of the bowl, he saw a gold ring and could not conceive how it could have got there. Then he ordered the cook to appear before him. The cook was terrified when he heard the order and said to Thousand Furs, You have certainly let a hair fall into the soup, and if you have, you shall be beaten for it. When he came before the king, the latter asked who had made the soup. The cook replied, I made it. But the king said, That is not true, for it was much better than usual and cooked differently. He answered, I must acknowledge that I did not make it. It was made by the rough animal. The king said, Go and bid it come up here. When Thousand Furs came, the king said, Who are you? I am a poor girl who no longer has any father or mother. 
he asked further, Of what use are you in my palace? She answered, I am good for nothing but to have boots thrown at my head. He answered, Where did you get the ring which was in the soup? She answered, I know nothing about the ring. So the king could learn nothing and had to send her away again. After a while, there was another festival, and then, as before, Thousand Furs begged the cook for leave to go and look on. He answered, Yes, but come back again in half an hour, and make the king the bread soup which he so much likes. Then she ran into her den, washed herself quickly, and took out of the nut the dress which was as silvery as the moon and put it on. Then she went up and was like a princess, and the king stepped forward to meet her and rejoiced to see her once more, and as the dance was just beginning, they danced it together. But when it ended, she again disappeared so quickly that the king could not observe where she went. She, however, sprang into her den, and once more made herself a hairy animal, and went into the kitchen to prepare the bread soup. When the cook had gone upstairs, she fetched the little golden spinning wheel and put it in the bowl so that the soup covered it. Then it was taken to the king, who ate it, and liked it as much as before, and had the cook brought, who this time likewise was forced to confess that Thousand Furs had prepared the soup. Thousand Furs again came before the king, but she answered that she was good for nothing else but to have boots thrown at her head, and that she knew nothing at all about the little golden spinning wheel. When, for the first time, the king held a festival, all happened just as it had done before. The cook said, Surely, rough skin, you are a witch, and always put something in the soup which makes it so good that the king likes it better than that which I cook. But as she begged so hard, he let her go up at the appointed time. And now she put on the dress which shone like the stars, and thus entered the hall. Again the king danced with the beautiful maiden, and thought that she had never yet been so beautiful. And while she was dancing, he contrived, without her noticing it, to slip a golden ring on her finger, and he had given orders that the dance should last a very long time. When it ended... He wanted to hold her fast by her hands, but she tore herself loose and sprang away so quickly through the crowd that she vanished from his sight. She ran as fast as she could into her den beneath the stairs, but as she had been too long and had stayed more than half an hour, she could not take off her pretty dress, but only threw over it her fur mantle and in her haste she did not make herself quite black, but one finger remained white. Then Thousand Furs ran into the kitchen and cooked the bread soup for the king, and as the cook was away, 
put her golden reel into it. When the king found the reel at the bottom of it, he had thousand furs summoned, and then he spied the white finger and saw the ring which he had put on it during the dance. Then he grasped her by the hand and held her fast, and when she wanted to release herself and run away, her mantle of fur opened a little, and the star dress shone forth. The king clutched the mantle and tore it off. Then her golden hair shone forth, and she stood there in full splendor and could no longer hide herself. And when she had washed the soot and ashes from her face, she was more beautiful than anyone who had ever been seen on earth. The king said, You are my dear bride, and we will never again part from each other. Thereupon the marriage was solemnized, and they lived happily until their death. Household Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 66 The Hare's Bride. There was once a woman and her daughter who lived in a pretty garden with cabbages, and a little hare came into it, and during the winter time ate all the cabbages. Then says the mother to the daughter, Go into the garden and chase the hare away. The girl says to the little hare, Shh, shh, hare, you are still eating up all our cabbages, says the hare. Come, maiden, and seat yourself on my little hare's tail, and come with me into my little hare's hut. The girl will not do it. Next day the hare comes again and eats the cabbages, then says the mother to the daughter, Go into the garden and drive the hare away. The girl says to the hare, Shh, shh, Little hare, you are still eating all the cabbages. The little hare says, Maiden, seat yourself on my little hare's tail, and come with me into my little hare's hut. The maiden refuses. The third day, the hare comes again, and eats the cabbages. At this, the mother says to the daughter, Go into the garden, and chase the hare away. Says the maiden, Shh, little hare, you are still eating all our cabbages. Says the little hare, Come, maiden, seat yourself on my little hare's tail, and come with me into my little hare's hut. The girl seats herself on the little hare's tail, and then the hare takes her far away to his little hut and says, Now, cook green cabbage and millet seed, and I will invite the wedding guests. Then all the wedding guests assembled. Who were the wedding guests? That I can tell you, as another told it to me. They were all hares, and the crow was there as parson to marry the bride and bridegroom, and the fox as clerk, and the altar was under the rainbow. The girl, however, was sad, for she was all alone. The little hare comes and says, Open the doors, open the doors, the wedding guests are merry. The bride says nothing but weeps. The little hare goes away. The little hare comes back and says, Take off the lid, take off the lid. The wedding guests are hungry. The bride again says nothing and weeps. The little hare goes away. The little hare comes back and says, Take off the lid, take off the lid. The wedding guests are waiting. 
Then the bride says nothing, and the hair goes away, but she dresses a straw doll in her clothes and gives her a spoon to stir with and sets her by the pan with the millet seed and goes back to her mother. The little hare comes once more and says, Take off the lid, take off the lid, and gets up and strikes the doll on the head so that her cap falls off. Then the little hare sees that it is not his bride and goes away and is sorrowful. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 67 The Twelve Hunters There was once a king's son who was betrothed to a maiden whom he loved very much, and when he was sitting beside her and very happy, news came that his father lay sick and dying and desired to see him once again before his end. Then he said to his beloved, I must go now and leave you. I give you a ring as a remembrance of me. When I am king, I will return and fetch you. So he rode away, and when he reached his father, the latter was dangerously ill and near his death. He said to him, Dear son, I wish to see you once again before my end. Promise me to marry as I wish. And he named a certain king's daughter who was to be his wife. The son was so upset that he did not think what he was doing and said, Yes, dear father, your will shall be done. And then the king shut his eyes and died. When the son had been proclaimed king and the time of mourning was over, he was forced to keep the promise which he had given his father and sent to the king's daughter to ask her hand in marriage and she was promised to him. His first betrothed heard of this and fretted so much about his faithlessness that she nearly died. Then her father said to her, Dearest child, why are you so sad? You shall have whatever you want. She thought for a moment and said, Dear father, I wish for eleven girls exactly like myself in face, figure and size. The father said, If it is possible, your desire shall be fulfilled. And he ordered a search to be made of his whole kingdom until eleven young maidens were found who exactly resembled his daughter in face, figure and size. When they came to the king's daughter, she had twelve suits of hunter's clothes made, all alike, and the eleven maidens had to put on the hunter's clothes, and she herself put on the twelfth suit. Then she took leave of her father, and rode away with them, and rode to the court of her former betrothed, whom she loved so dearly. Then she inquired if he required any hunters, and if she would take the whole of them, into his service. The king looked at her and did not know her, but as they were such handsome fellows, he said yes, and that he would willingly take them, and now they were the king's twelve hunters. The king, however, had a lion, which was a wondrous animal, for he knew all concealed and secret things. It came to pass that one evening he said to the king, You think you shall have twelve hunters? Yes, said the king, they are twelve hunters. The lion continued, You are mistaken, they are twelve girls. The king said, That cannot be true, how will you prove that to me?
Oh, just let some peas be strewn in your ante-room, answered the lion, and then you will soon see it. Men have a firm step, and when they walk over the peas, none of them stir, but girls trip and skip and drag their feet, and the peas roll about. The king was well pleased with the council, and caused the peas to be strewn. There was, however, a servant of the king's who favoured the hunters, and when he heard that they were going to be put to this test, he went to them and repeated everything, and said, The lion wants to make the king believe that you are girls. Then the king's daughter thanked him, and said to her maidens, Have some strength, and step firmly on the peas. So next morning, when the king had the twelve hunters called before him, and they came into the ante-room where the peas were lying, they stepped so firmly on them, and had such a strong shore walk, that not one of the peas either rolled or stirred. Then they went away again, and the king said to the lion, You have lied to me, they walk just like men. The lion said, They have got to know that they were going to be put to the test, and have assumed some strength. Just let twelve spinning wheels be brought into the ante-room some day, and they will go to them and be pleased with them, and that is what no man would do. The king liked the advice, and had the spinning wheels placed in the ante-room. But the servant, who was well disposed to the hunters, went to them and disclosed the project. Then when they were alone, the king's daughter said to the eleven girls, Have some constraint on yourselves, and do not look round at the spinning wheels. And next morning, when the king had his twelve hunters summoned, they went through the ante-room, and never once looked at the spinning wheels. Then the king again said to the lion, You have deceived me. They are men, for they have not looked at the spinning wheels. The lion replied, They have learnt that they were going to be put to the test, and have restrained themselves. The king, however, would no longer believe the lion. The twelve hunters always followed the king to the chase, and his liking for them continually increased. Now it came to pass that once they were out hunting, news came that the king's betrothed was approaching. When the true bride heard that, it hurt her so much that her heart was almost broken, and she fell fainting to the ground. The king thought something had happened to his dear hunter, ran up to him, wanted to help him, and drew his glove off. Then he saw the ring which he had given to his first bride, and when he looked at her face he recognised her. Then his heart was so touched that he kissed her. And when she opened her eyes, he said, You are mine, and I am yours, and no one in the world can alter that. He sent a messenger to the other bride, and entreated her to return to her own kingdom, for he had a wife already, and a man who had just found an old dish did not require a new one. Soon the wedding was celebrated, and the lion was again taken into favour, because, after all, He had told the truth. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. 
Number sixty-eight, the thief and his master. Hans wished to send his son to learn a trade, so he went into the church and prayed to our Lord God to know which would be most advantageous for him. Then the clerk got behind the altar and said, "Thieving, thieving!" At this, Hans goes back to his son and tells him he is to learn. Thieving, and that the Lord God had said so. So, he goes with his son to seek a man who is acquainted with thieving. They walk a long time and come into a great forest where stands a little house with an old woman in it. Hans says, "Do you know of a man who is acquainted with thieving?" "You can learn that here quite well," says the woman. "My son." Is a master of it, so he speaks with the son and asks if he knows thieving really well. The master thief says, "I will teach him well. Come back when a year is over, and then if you recognise your son, I will take no payment at all for teaching him. But if you don't know him, you must give me two hundred talkers." The father goes home again. And the son learns witchcraft and thieving thoroughly. When the year is over, the father is full of anxiety to know how he is to recognise his son. As he is thus going about in his trouble, he meets a little dwarf who says, "Man, what ails you, that you are always in such trouble?" Oh, says Hans. A year ago, I placed my son with a master thief who told me I was to come back when the year was over, and that if I did not know my son when I saw him, I was to pay two hundred talkers. But if I did know him, I was to pay nothing. And now I am afraid of not knowing him and can't tell where I am to get the money. Then the dwarf tells him to take a small basket of bread with him, and to stand beneath the chimney. There, on the crossbeam, is a basket, out of which a little bird is peeping, and that is your son. Hans goes there and throws a little basket full of black bread in front of the basket with the bird in it, and the little bird comes out and looks up. Hello, my son. Are you here? says the father, and the son is delighted to see his father. But the master thief says, "The devil must have prompted you, or how could you have known your son?" Father, let us go now," says the youth. Then the father and son set out homeward. On the way, a carriage comes driving by, and the son says to the father, "I will change myself into a large greyhound." And then you can earn a great deal of money by me. Then the gentleman calls from the carriage, "My man, will you sell your dog?" "Yes," says the father. "How much do you want for it?" "Thirty talkers." "Eh, man, that is too much. But as it is such a very fine dog, I will have it." The gentleman takes it into his carriage, but when they have driven a little farther, the dog springs out of the carriage through the window, and goes back to his father, and is no longer a greyhound. They go home together. 
Next day there was a fair in the neighbouring town, so the youth says to his father, I will now change myself into a beautiful horse, and you can sell me, but when you've sold me, you must take off my bridle, or I cannot become a man again. Then the father goes with the horse to the fair, and the master thief comes and buys the horse for a hundred talkers, but the father forgets and does not take off the bridle. So the man goes home with the horse and puts it in the stable. When the maid crosses the threshold, the horse says, Take off my bridle, take off my bridle. Then the maid stands still and says, What? Can you speak? So she goes and takes the bridle off, and the horse becomes a sparrow and flies out at the door, and the master becomes a sparrow also and flies after him. Then they come together and cast lots, but the master loses and changes himself to the water and is a fish. Then the youth also becomes a fish, and they cast lots again and the master loses. So the master changes himself into a cock, and the youth becomes a fox and bites the master's head off, and he died and has remained dead to this day. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 69, Jorinda and Jeringle. There was once an old castle in the middle of a large and thick forest, and in it an old woman who was a witch dwelt all alone. In the daytime she changed herself into a cat or a screech owl, but in the evening she took her proper shape again as a human being. She could lure wild beasts and birds to her, and then she killed and boiled and roasted them. If anyone came within one hundred paces of the castle, he was obliged to stand still and could not stir from the place until she bade him be free. But whenever an innocent maiden came within this circle, she changed her into a bird and shut her up in a wickerwork cage and carried the cage into a room in the castle. She had about 7,000 cages of rare birds in the castle. Now there was once a maiden who was called Jorinda, who was fairer than all other girls. She and a handsome youth named Jeringle had promised to marry each other. They were still in the days of betrothal, and their greatest happiness was being together. One day, in order that they might be able to talk together in quiet, they went for a walk in the forest. Take care, said Jeringle, that you do not go too near the castle. It was a beautiful evening. The sun shone brightly between the trunks and the trees into the dark green of the forest, and the turtle dove sang mournfully upon the young boughs of the birch trees. Jorinda wept now and then. She sat down in the sunshine and was sorrowful. Jeringle was sorrowful too. They were as sad as if they were about to die. Then they looked around them and were quite at a loss, for they did not know by which way they should go home. The sun was still half above the mountain and half set. Jeringle, 
looked through the bushes and saw the old walls of the castle close at hand. He was horror-stricken and filled with deadly fear. Jorinda was singing, My little bird with the necklace red sings sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. He sings that the dove must soon be dead. Sings sorrow, sore, jug, jug, jug. Jeringle looked for Jorinda. She was changed into a nightingale and sang jug, jug, jug. A screech owl with glowing eyes flew three times round about her and three times cried, Toohoo, toohoo, toohoo. Jeringle could not move. He stood there like a stone and could neither weep nor speak nor move hand or foot. The sun had now set. The owl flew into the thicket, and directly afterwards there came out of it a crooked old woman, yellow and lean, with large red eyes and a hooked nose, the point of which reached to her chin. She muttered to herself, caught the nightingale, and took it away in her hand. Jeringle could neither speak nor move from the spot. The nightingale was gone. At last the woman came back and said in a hollow voice, Greetings, Zachiel. If the moon shines on the cage, Zachiel, let him loose at once. Then Jeringle was freed. He fell on his knees before the woman and begged that she would give him back his Jorinda. But she said that he should never have her again and went away. He called, he wept, he lamented, but all in vain. Ah, what is to become of me? Jeringle went away, and at last came to a strange village. There he kept sheep for a long time. He often walked round and round the castle, but not too near it. At last he dreamt one night that he found a blood-red flower, in the middle of which was a beautiful large pearl, that he picked the flower and went with it to the castle, and that everything he touched with the flower was freed from enchantment. He also dreamt that by means of it he recovered his Jorinda. In the morning, when he awoke, he began to seek over hill and dale if he could find such a flower. He sought until the ninth day, and then early in the morning he found the blood-red flower. In the middle of it there was a large dewdrop, as big as the finest pearl. Day and night he journeyed with this flower to the castle. When he was within a hundred paces of it, he was not held fast, but walked on to the door. Jeringle was full of joy. He touched the door with the flower, and it sprang open. He walked in through the courtyard and listened for the sound of the birds. At last he heard it. He went on and found the room from which it came, and there the witch was feeding the birds in the seven thousand cages. When she saw Jeringle, she was angry, very angry, and scalded and spat poison and gall at him, but she could not come within two paces of him. He did not take any notice of her, but went and looked at the cages with the birds. But there were many hundred nightingales. How was he to find his Jorinda again? Just then 
he saw the old woman quietly take away a cage with a bird in it and go towards the door. Swiftly, he sprang towards her, touched the cage with the flower and also the old woman. She could now no longer bewitch anyone and Jorinda was standing there clasping him round the neck and she was as beautiful as ever. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 70, The Three Sons of Fortune. A father once called his three sons before him, and he gave to the first a cock, to the second a scythe, and to the third a cat. I'm already aged, said he. My death is near, and I've wished to take thought for you before my end. Money I have not, and what I now give you seems of little worth, but all depends on your making a sensible use of it. Seek out a country where such things are still unknown, and your fortune is made. After the father's death, the eldest went away with his cock, but wherever he came the cock was already known. In every town he saw from a long distance a cock sitting upon the steeples and turning round with the wind, and in the villages he heard more than one crowing. No one would show any wonder at the creature, so that it did not look as if he would make his fortune by it. At last, however, it happened that he came to an island where the people knew nothing about cocks and did not even understand how to divide their time. They certainly knew when it was morning or evening, but at night, if they did not sleep through it, not one of them knew how to find out the time. Look, said he, what a proud creature! It was a ruby-red crown upon its head and wears spurs like a knight. It calls you three times during the night at fixed hours and when it calls for the last time, the sun soon rises. But if it crows by broad daylight, then take notice for there will certainly be a change of weather. The people were well pleased. For a whole night they did not sleep and listened with great delight as the cock at two, four and six o'clock loudly and clearly proclaimed the time. They asked if the creature were for sale and how much he wanted for it. About as much gold as an ass can carry, answered he. A ridiculously small price for such a precious creature they cried unanimously, and willingly gave him what he had asked. When he came home with his wealth, his brothers were astonished, and the second said, Well, I will go forth and see whether I cannot get rid of my scythe as profitably. But it did not look as if he would, for labourers met him everywhere, and they had scythes upon their shoulders as well as he. At last, however, he chanced upon an island where the people knew nothing of scythes. When the corn was ripe there, they took cannon out to the fields and shot it down. 
Now this was rather an uncertain affair. Many shot right over it, others hit the ears instead of the stems, and shot them away, whereby much was lost, and besides all this, it made a terrible noise. So the man set to work, and mowed it down so quietly and quickly, that the people opened their mouths with astonishment. They agreed to give him what he wanted for the scythe, and he received a horse laden with as much gold as it could carry. And now the third brother wanted to take his cat to the right man. He fared just like the others. So long as he stayed on the mainland, there was nothing to be done. Every place had cats, and there were so many of them that newborn kittens were generally drowned in the ponds. At last he sailed over to an island, and it luckily happened that no cats had ever yet been seen there, and that the mice had gone the upper hand so much that they danced upon the tables and benches, whether the master were at home or not. The people complained bitterly of the plague. The king himself in his palace did not know how to secure himself against them. Mice squeaked in every corner and gnawed whatever they could lay hold of with their teeth. But now the cat began her chase and soon cleared a couple of rooms and the people begged the king to buy the wonderful beast for the country. The king willingly gave what was asked which was a mule laden with gold and jewels, and the third brother came home with the greatest treasure of all. The cat made herself merry with the mice in the royal palace, and killed so many that they could not be counted. At last she grew warm with the work and thirsty, so she stood still, lifted up her head and cried, Mew, meow. When they heard this strange cry, the king and all his people were frightened, and in their terror ran all at once out of the palace. Then the king took counsel what was best to be done. At last it was determined to send a herald to the cat and demand that she should leave the palace, or if not she was to expect that force would be used against her. The counsellors said, We would rather let ourselves be plagued with the mice, for to that misfortune we are accustomed, than give up our lives to such a monster as this. A noble youth, therefore, was sent to ask the cat whether she would peaceably quit the castle, but the cat, whose thirst had become still greater, merely answered, Meow, meow. The youth understood her to say, Most certainly not. Most certainly not, and took this answer to the king. Then said the counsellors, She shall yield to force. Cannon were brought out, and the palace was soon in flames. When the fire reached the room where the cat was sitting, she sprang safely out of the window, but the besiegers did not leave off until the whole palace was shot down to the ground. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Numbers 71. 
How Six Men Got On in the World There was once a man who understood all kinds of arts. He served in war and behaved well and bravely. But when the war was over, he received his dismissal and free farthings for his expenses on the way. Stop, said he. I shall not be content with this. If I can only meet with the right people, the king will have yet to give me all the treasure of the country. Then full of anger, he went into the forest and saw a man standing there who had plucked up six trees as if they were blades of corn. He said to him, Will you be my servant and go with me? Yes, he answered. But first I will take this little bundle of sticks home to my mother. And he took one of the trees and wrapped it round the five others, lifted the bundle on his back and carried it away. Then he returned and went with his master who said, We too ought to be able to get through the world very well. And when they had walked on for a short while, they found a hunter who was kneeling, had shouldered his gun and was about to fire. The master said to him, Hunter, what are you going to shoot? He answered, Two miles from here, a fly is sitting on the branch of an oak tree, and I want to shoot its left eye out. Oh, come with me, said the man. If we three are together, we certainly ought to be able to get on in the world. The hunter was ready and went with him, and they came to seven windmills whose sails were turning round with great speed, and yet no wind was blowing either on the right or the left, and no leaf was stirring. Then said the man, I know not what is driving the windmills, not a breath of air is stirring. And he went onwards with his servants, and when they had walked two miles, they saw a man sitting on a tree who was shutting one nostril and blowing out of the other. Good gracious, what are you doing up there? He answered, Two miles from here are seven windmills. Look, I am blowing them till they turn round. Oh, come with me, said the man. If we four are together, we shall carry the whole world before us. Then the blower came down and went with him, and after a while they saw a man who was standing on one leg and had taken off the other, and laid it beside him. Then the master said, You have arranged things very comfortably to have a rest. I am a runner, he replied, and to stop myself running far too fast, I have taken off one of my legs, for if I run with both I go quicker than any bird can fly. Oh, go with me. If we fiver together, we shall carry the whole world before us. So he went with them, and it was not long before they met a man who wore a cap, but had put it over just one ear. Then the master said to him, Gracefully, gracefully, don't stick your cap on one ear. You look just like a tomfool. I must not wear it otherwise, said he, for if I set my hat straight, a terrible frost comes on, and all the birds in the air are frozen and drop dead on the ground. Oh, come with me, said the master. If we six are together, we can carry the whole world 
before us. Now the six came to a town where the king had proclaimed that whoever ran a race with his daughter and won the victory should be her husband, but whoever lost it must lose his head. Then the man presented himself and said, I will, however, let my servant run for me. The king replied, Then his life also must be staked, so that his head and yours are both set on the victory. When that was settled and made secure, the man buckled the other leg on the runner and said to him, Now be nimble and help us win. It was fixed that the one who was first to bring some water from a far distant well was to be the victor. The runner received a pitcher, and the king's daughter won too, and they began to run at the same time, but in an instant when the king's daughter had got a very little way, the people who were looking on could see no more of the runner, and it was just as if the wind had whistled by. In a short time he reached the well, filled his pitcher with water, and turned back. Halfway home, however, he was overcome with fatigue and set down his pitcher, lay down and fell asleep. He had, however, made a pillow of a horse's skull which was lying on the ground in order that he might lie uncomfortably and soon wake up again. In the meantime, the king's daughter, who could also run very well, quite as well as any ordinary mortal can, had reached the well and was hurrying back with her pitcher full of water, and when she saw the runner lying there asleep, she was glad and said, My rival is delivered over into my hands, emptied his pitcher and ran on. And now all would have been lost if by good luck the hunter had not been standing at the top of the castle and had not seen everything with his sharp eyes. Then said he, The king's daughter shall still not prevail against us. And he loaded his gun and shot so cleverly that he shot the horse's skull away from under the runner's head without hurting him. Then the runner awoke, leapt up, and saw that his pitcher was empty, and that the king's daughter was already far in advance. He did not lose heart, however, but ran back to the well with his pitcher, again drew some water, and was at home again ten minutes before the king's daughter. Look, said he, I have barely stretched my legs till now. It did not deserve to be called running before... But it pained the king, and still more his daughter, that she should be carried off by a common, disbanded soldier like that. So they took counsel with each other how to get rid of him and his companions. Then said the king to her, I have thought of a way. Don't be afraid, they shall not come back again. And he said to them, You shall now make merry together and eat and drink. And he conducted them to a room which had a floor of iron, and the doors also were of iron, and the windows were guarded with iron bars. There was a table in the room covered with delicious food. And the king said to them, Go in and enjoy yourselves. 
and when they were inside, he ordered the doors to be shut and bolted. Then he sent for the cook and commanded him to make a fire under the room until the iron became red hot. This the cook did, and the six who were sitting at the table began to feel quite warm, and they thought the heat was caused by the food, but as it became still greater, and they wanted to get out, and found that the doors and windows were bolted, they became aware that the king must have an evil intention, and wanted to suffocate them. He shall not succeed, however, said the one with the cap. I will cause a frost to come that shall make the fire feel ashamed and creep away. Then he put his cap on straight, and immediately there came such a frost that all heat disappeared, and the food on the dishes began to freeze. When an hour or two had passed by, and the king believed that they had perished in the heat, he had the doors open to see them himself, but when the doors were opened, all six were standing there alive and well, and said that they should very much like to get out to warm themselves, for the very food was fast frozen to the dishes with the cold. Then, full of anger, the king went down to the cook, scolded him, and asked why he had not done what he had been ordered to do. But the king replied, there is heat enough there, just look yourself. Then the king saw that a fierce fire was burning under the iron room and perceived that there was no getting the better of the six in this way. Again, the king considered how to get rid of his unpleasant guests and had their chief brought and said, If you will take gold and renounce my daughter... You shall have as much as you will. Oh yes, Lord King, he answered, give us as much as my servant can carry, and I will not ask for your daughter. At this the king was satisfied, and the other continued, In fourteen days I will come and fetch it. Then he summoned together all the tailors in the whole kingdom and they were to sit for fourteen days and sew a sack. And when it was ready, the strong one who could tear up trees had to take it on his back and go with it to the king. Then the king said, Who can that strong fellow be who is carrying a bundle of linen on his back that is as big as a house? And he was alarmed and said, What a lot of gold he can carry away. Then he commanded a ton of gold to be brought. It took sixteen of his strongest men to carry it. But the strong one snatched it up in one hand, put it in his sack and said, Why don't you bring more at the same time? That hardly covers the bottom. Then little by little the king had all his treasure brought there and the strong one pushed it into the sack and still the sack was not half full with it. Bring more, cried he. These few crumbs don't fill it. Then seven thousand carts with gold had to be gathered together in the whole kingdom, and the strong one thrust them into his sack with the oxen still harnessed to them. I will not look too closely, said he, 
but will just take what comes so long as the sack is full. When all that was inside, there was still room for a great deal more. Then he said, I will just make an end of this. I will tie up the sack, even though it is not full. So he took it on his back and went away with his comrades. When the king now saw how one single man was carrying away the entire wealth of the country, he became enraged and bade his horsemen mount and pursue the six and ordered them to take the sack away from the strong one. Two regiments speedily overtook the six and called out, You are prisoners, put down the sack with the gold, or you will all be cut to pieces. What say you, cried the blower, that we are prisoners? Rather than that should happen, all of you shall dance about in the air. And he closed one nostril, and with the other blew on the two regiments. Then they were driven away from each other and carried into the blue sky over all the mountains, one here, the other there. One sergeant cried for mercy. He had nine wounds and was a brave fellow who did not deserve ill treatment. The blower stopped a little so that he came down without injury. And then the blower said to him, Now... Go home to your king, and tell him he had better send some more horsemen, and I will blow them all into the air. When the king was informed of this, he said, Let the rascals go, they have the best of it. Then the six carried the riches home, divided it amongst them, and lived in content until their death.